Fellow Westorians, welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. We had a Sunday off, but now we're back. We're here to talk about R'hllor. R'hllor, that hard to say, but fun to burn name. <laughs> Sean, do you have a, an appropriately red beverage today, or did you, did you fail to color code? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I really failed. I should have got Rainbow Machine. They could drink. But I have the berry, naked berry protein drink. That's what I have. And the pomegranate blueberry V8. Whoa, V8 getting a, in there. Yes. Along with a new Mountain Dew, pineapple Mountain Dew oh. in the mix. Huh, I in don't the even mix, drink, quite literally. I don't even really drink soda these days, but I'm kind of intrigued by a pineapple Mountain Dew just to hmm. try. They also have a mango, oh, which I will use next try, week. But mm. also mango Dew. Interesting. Hmm. You know, these, I was thinking, since R'hllor is such kind of a small, short topic, maybe we'll, in, we'll also do like the Stark family or something. And <laughs> we could just sneak yeah. that in there, yeah. yeah. Another small topic, yeah. Yeah, we'll also cover War and Peace today. <laughs> <laughs> and the entire catalog of Star Wars animated shows. We'll, we'll cover all of that, yeah, today. As part of our coverage of R'hllor. <laughs> <laughs> All 50 seasons of Guiding Light. You know, we'll just pile more on there. <laughs> there really are over 50 seasons of that show out there. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Shout out to our good friend Nina. Her latest post on goodqueenally with one L.tumblr.com is a cool idea on what if Aegon IV was trying to make Damon Blackfire king of the Stepstones? What was that? What if that was his original plan before just going straight up and calling him heir? or giving him the sword Blackfire. The reason this idea works pretty well for me in particular, as well as just being a good, fun theory on top of that, is that the there was a lot of pol- politicking with Tyrosh and with Dorne. Dorne wasn't in the realm at that point still, so it was just before. So there was a lot of... Uh, the political situation was very different. There's a lot of different movers and shakers in the game at that point. And we know Aegon was trying to undermine his own heir and appointing his bastard son to King of the Stepstones would be, or maneuvering that, he couldn't just appoint him, would be a good way to take a shot at weakening his heir even more. It is speculation, but I enjoy it. Very good stuff. So check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com and have some fun. We, of course, are always happy to get questions from you all, whether you submit them to our email at westroshistory.gmail.com or whether you join our Discord or Facebook groups. Those are the probably the three best places. You can also send questions via Twitter and anywhere you can find us. We'll probably take a question. And today's trivia. We'll, we'll, we'll be asking a lot of our own questions, actually, because there's a lot of unanswered things about R'hllor. And even when we can't answer something, we still want to raise the question. It's fun to think about, even things that we have a lot of vagueness around. But we'll start today with our own question, our trivia question, which is on topic today. Several people refer to or think of Thoros jokingly as a pink priest or just as pink, including the ghost of High Heart, Arya, and even Thoros himself uses the term pink for himself. The phrase Pink Priest is used by one other POV character, and it's not in reference to Thoros, who says the phrase Pink Priest other than those other three characters. 
don't know, but it sounds like Sean is muted, but also that Sean needs to perhaps cosplay as Thoros the Pink Priest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, you you could you could pull that one off based on his. Tickets. I know the answer to this question. I'm just proud of myself. Oh. Nice. All right, we'll see if anybody else has it at the end of episode. So, Relor to start. Relor is a fire god, not just a fire god, but that's where we'll start. And that's an interesting place to to begin because we've seen a lot of like elemental gods, right? That's that's how a lot of things start. A lot of these gods, like wind gods and sun gods and water gods and forest gods, a lot of those have kind of faded as humanity advanced and civilization rose and more and more nations formed and chiefs turned into kings and things like that. The conceptualization of what gods are gets a little more, maybe a little more sophisticated. It's not just what we see in nature. But I like to kind of guess, and tell me what you think of this, Sean, that there were probably a lot of other fire gods back in the day, like there are or were in our real world. But sometimes... When two religions are similar, one of them kind of swallows up the other one. There's a ton of versions of Christianity. They haven't all been swallowed. You know, some of them, they all, a lot of them in, exist independently. And, but there have been some that have been swallowed up. Christianity swallowed some other religions too. You know, sure. depending quite how you define swallow. But uh, yeah, there, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense that early religions, you know, one significant role, one of the main roles religion plays is to explain the world around us, yeah. right? Like yeah. well, one thing it does is like, how should we behave? That's one role religion has, philosophical element. But another one is scientific element, you know, like why did the thunder strike? When is it going to rain? Or the gods Cause must be angry yeah, at you. Yeah. yeah, things like that. And so a lot of early religions were based around that. And, you know, I don't know how much of it is just, I don't know if coincidence is right, where maybe it's a natural inevitability as we understand those things better when we start to be able to predict the stars and the weather, which we're way better at now. But even a thousand years ago, they were better than 10,000 years ago, yeah. you know. And so we started to have gods be centered more around philosophy and, and monotheistic mm. gods Concept, started to yeah, outweigh yeah. pantheons of gods. You know, those were things that tended to happen in a lot of cultures in a lot of areas. So, it, and, it, and it kind of makes sense. You can see the reasons for yeah. that. And with Relore, though, I guess something worked a little better. It just maybe it succeeded because it was successful at subsuming other fire gods. It's kind of fitting, right? Fire gods. You, you see a lot of times uh, that is like a hungry god or a greedy thing because fire just keeps going. It never never burns out until it runs out of stuff to burn. It doesn't just pause. Hey, you know, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> so Relora has many titles and nicknames. The Lord of Light, the Red God. But Relora is also the god of shadow. That's where there's a pretty substantial difference in this characterization. Just fire, we've seen lots of examples of that in the real world, other fantasy stories, other, you know, other places, even sci-fi, I'm sure. But fire and shadow combined is a little different. That's, that's a little more ominous, isn't it? Even though Melisandre says it's a good thing. But she says this even as she's pointing out that Relora likes pretty things to be sacrificed. <laughs> You know, it's like we like to burn pretty things and nice things. The better, the the nicer the thing, the more pleasing it is to R'hllor. That sounds like hungry, you know, greedy, give me all that. But somehow Melisandre makes that sound good. It doesn't really work on me, though. I don't know about you. I doesn't. She doesn't really make it sound good to me. She does make the other sound dangerous, though. Of course, she doesn't need help with that. I mean, they're kind of dangerous on their own. <laughs> I, I can't help sometimes but be a little cynical about 
about religion, so I'll, I'll try to keep that in check. <laughs> but a lot of religion, a lot of their beliefs, whether they were sinister in the first place or not, the way they play out is, it's almost like evolution. If there's something in your religion that causes people to believe in it more strongly or incorporates more people, then the religion is more likely to survive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so if Very your true. religion demands some sort of sacrifice, once you make that sacrifice, you're a little more committed. Mm. You know what I mean? You're a little like less likely to opt out after you've made some big sacrifice. So a religion requiring some big sacrifice, especially if you can get someone when they're more naive or young or whatever, <laughs> you're more likely to have them for life, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I could see that element relore, you know, you know, demanding something more pretty. It's a, a test of loyalty and it Pro, creates yeah. a, a greater commitment in the long run. So yeah, that's that's a really good way to say it. Now, relore does play a huge role in the story. And as Sean was joking earlier, it's not a topic that we can fully cover in one episode. But we have covered some things elsewhere. We covered a lot on in our Ashai episode. There's a lot of stuff about shadow binding and some of the red priests and the history there. And the prophecies, that's a big thing. We're not going to get too deep with the prophecy because that's, you know, other than to acknowledge it and, and tie in certain aspects of it. But the actual prophecy itself, we've dealt with elsewhere. But these are, this is just a quick list of some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Red priests and red temples, a variety of fire and shadow magics, visions, resurrection glamours, shadow babies. Not like a deep dive on what those are, but comparing them to the thematic opposition. Because one of the main focuses today is comparing R'hllor comparing fire themes to the ice themes of winter that are coming to, to a head in the next book and are starting to come to a head at the end of Dance with Dragons. The dragons alone are not the, the fire element. They are a big part of it. Perhaps they're the tip of the spear, the most important part, other than perhaps Daenerys. But they are not alone, right? They're, the, the fire stuff is a lot broader than just dragons and Targaryens. And R'hllor is, I don't know, if, if Danny is the the queen of all that, then R'hllor, the Reloris are like the infantry, the foot soldiers. I mean, yeah, she's already got unsullied. <laughs> but these, uh, these guys are still the, the rank and file boots on the ground types. You could say it's a notable melody in the Song of Ice and Fire. Like fire themes, there's a bunch of different instruments playing the fire part, and this is one of them. We'll also have some comparisons to other religions. We've got a, a little chunk on real world stuff today. Plot threads around a number of characters, large and small. Of course, Azora High, Nissa Nissa, Lightbringer, that stuff will be in here a bit. And we'll get at what it's like for in-world characters. Because one thing that's really neat, I think, is that Relorism isn't big in Westeros, but it's starting to become bigger. We're seeing the rise of it, and it's a neat because it's a really old religion, but it's new to Westeros. And those two things together are going to cause some interesting stories. Well, have already caused some interesting stories or parts of stories, and they're going to continue to do that. Let's get into the first mentions, as we so often do. We'll start there. The Clash of Kings prologue. Here we go. The first mention of R'hllor. Melisandre of Bashai, sorceress, shadowbinder, and priestess to R'hllor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Melisandre, whose madness must not be allowed to spread beyond Dragonstone. Sorry, Crescent. That is whose thoughts there are there. It spreads quite a bit beyond Dragonstone. <laughs> And the fact that you're unable to poison her successfully, even though she drinks the poison, is, uh, yeah, that certainly set up her character a little more. Like, whoa, <laughs> what's up with that? But yes, yeah, so, some examples. I mean, these are familiar, but just to remind everybody, the Queen's Men of Stannis and, and Selyse, of course. The Brotherhood Without Banners, which is, is kind of unusual. You have an outlaw band in the middle of the Riverlands. It's adopted this new god. That's, it, it, certainly this, the circumstances for that are not 
unusual in a sense that it's weird, but it is, you know, from a distance, it's kind of odd. (laughs) And of course, it's huge, 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 huge outside of Westeros. It has been for so long time. Oh, I skipped one. The forced conversion of free folk. A lot of free folk have been converted. I don't know how sincere they are. Probably not very. But some of them maybe will be pretty sincere. I think the the bulk of them, I think, are now like now we're still... I know what we said. We burned a piece of weirwood and said the words, but... That doesn't change what's in my heart. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I wonder how many of them are kind of in in line with like a Victorian kind of perspective where he's, well, you know, they might all be real. So I can't, like, I, I said the words. So like I have add to- Add them to the list. Yeah, add them to the list. Like I still, I still believe in my old gods, but I'll, I won't not believe in R'hllor either. Yeah, it's like they disagree on the part where Melisandre says it's the only god. Like all the other gods are demons. Well, we don't agree with that part. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's basically what Victorian says. He's yeah. no, I don't know. I was like, no, the drowned god's not a demon. Watch your tongue. But the red god, he deserves his due. You know, that's, that's kind of where they like compromise. Melisandre <laughs> <laughs> does want them to accept R'hllor as just the one god. Yeah. And I was thinking that they might, when they see the real power, right, they might be convinced that makes sense that R'hllor is real, is powerful. What? But I still don't know if that will convince them that Relor is the only. How will she yeah. convince them that all other gods are demons? That will be hard. That's to a hard. Them. That's a tough sell. I agree, especially given yeah. what you said about people who have ado- had these whatever gods they do worship have been there since they were kids, and their parents and their grandparents and all that. So that that leads me into a second thought, though. It's something I think about a lot when we contemplate where the series is going. The idea that they've adopted Relor now, even if it's only like they have to, they said the words, they're going through the motions. But if a new generation is brought into that also, will all of them teach their kids, mm. we're just pretending, you know, or will yeah. they, will the kids just accept it? It's the society that they're part of and they'll just go along with it. In a few generations, it may be a legitimate religion that takes hold, I don't know, in the North and spreads, whatever. But we can't see that. That's yeah. not right. That, that, how is <laughs> Danny's is art going to resolve yeah. revealing the long-term effects of R'hllor in this continent? I, I feel like George has presented a story that we want answers from beyond the lifespans of these. <laughs> yeah, like you could see, <laughs> if you see a bunch of young children like worshiping R'hllor. You can be pretty sure that's going to carry for. That would be a sign. Like it's not yeah. a guarantee. Yeah. But it would be a pretty big like clue towards the future. So it has been surging, we'll say. The the whether it will settle, whether it will hold. You know, and one of the things I think that will determine that, Sean, maybe it won't convince people that Relor is the only god. But just like Stannis was convinced by the fact that Melisandre has real power, like actual magic, he's like, Okay, well that's I can't deny that. I think a lot of the yeah. free folk are gonna see that same thing and be like, Okay, this is real. Maybe some of them already may have seen her burn. Baramir out of the sky. <laughs> you know, they're like, whoa, what was that? So they're, they're already afraid of her. They already know she has real power. So it's just a matter of her doing some more. Maybe in enchanting them, I don't mean that literally, like in, with the possibilities of what else she can do. And she apparently she can do a lot because she says the wall, that area is, you know, a hinge of the world. We've talked about that before. And whatever she's going to do, it's going to be more powerful than things she's done before. So that's going to impress some people. Well, one thing that will be important, I think, is that the power she demonstrates be beneficial to them. Yeah. Otherwise, mm, that's true. R'hllor's a demon and our God is real. Yeah, has to bring the benefit. You're right. I was going to say, I think you brought up one of the counterpoints for all that is that, you know, they see things like Baromir, they see skin changers. So they, they have proof of you know, the old God's power. They, they have proof, all of them, but their gods have power as well, which is the reason why they wouldn't just discount it, even if they see R'hllor's power. Yeah. But they might not 
discount their gods being demons, or they may like they may see they're all they're yeah. all gods. Melisandre saying ours is the one you should worship; those others are demons. And if Veramir is their evidence, there's an argument to be made that the powers of the old gods are kind of evil. That doesn't mean they would not respect that, you know, because a lot of that isn't just oh, I choose the god that I like the most. No, you choose sometimes you, you worship what you have to. It's well, if we don't worship, they're gonna squash us you know it's that kind of thing it isn't like a it isn't like a modern thing where we just go which church do i want to go to you know like where you just kind of mm. think you get to you have all this freedom of choice in that regard so yeah so you might say that the in the religion the people of westeros given all the issues the war the starvation you might say people are a bit inflamed <laughs> so that would bring them perhaps to something new and of course with all this winter overrunning everything and, and the cold and the and all that you can see why fire would be like very Yes, we need some more of that. That's that's very helpful. And you can see why that might be the reason some people survive is because they have sufficient warmth. And Mel Saunders says, yes, thank Relor for all this warmth. Thank him for the light, the darkness that's coming when the light comes after it all. That's who you're going to have to think of it. Think for it all. So here's the next quote. This is the first time Relor is mentioned in the world of ice and fire. It is also written that there are annals in a shy of such a darkness and of a hero who fought against it with a red sword. His deeds are said to have been performed before the rise of Valyria. In the earliest age, when Old Gis was first forming its empire, this legend has spread west from a shy, and the followers of Relore claim that this hero was named Azor Ahai and prophecy has returned. So you've definitely heard that quote before, but it is the first mention of R'hllor. And we've talked plenty about that prophecy, but uh, but we almost always, when we do it, we're looking forward, as in who might be Azor Ahai. We're checking off the boxes, see who qualifies. And we do that with the historical Azor Ahais, the means in the past, even though we don't know who these figures are. We have names for them. We don't know much about them. So we compare the two. We compare the ancient figures to the current figures. But there's a lot in between all that, right? There's, there's, it's not just about Azor Ahai, obviously, the end, but it, it is about how these red priests behave towards that legend as well and how the rank and file behave towards that. But I also would guess that y'all didn't realize that was the first time Relore was named in that quote, even though it's very familiar. Now, Relore and Relay, you wonder maybe if George R. R. Martin was inspired by the resting place of Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah, we finally got it. A question in the chat just about that just now. It was on people's really? mind. Yeah, they asked, has there ever been a connection between Lore and its priests and the island of Relay and Cthulhu as the great priest from Joshua Sosa, to which other people have replied saying, you know, that we, considering we have a connection between the drowned god and ironborn and stuff like that, there might be a greater connection to water than fire. Yeah. And, and if you don't know what the word relay looks like, it's R apostrophe L Y E H, whereas Relor is R apostrophe H L L O R. So it's the R apostrophe is very notable there. And obviously, we've pointed out George's connection to Lovecraft plenty of times. So it's, it's, I don't know that this is definitely the reason. I don't know. It certainly looks similar. George's connection to Lovecraft is strong, but I don't know for sure that this is the inspiration. My, just so you know, my mind wondered, assumed that it might have been. Red lore. And you might have just kind of mashed those words and changed spelling (laughs) to give it some distinctness. But a lot of the words George uses, all the words humans use, have fairly obvious, apparent, you know, Westeros. So it's it's not a stretch where those words came from, you know. It's true. Now, here's the thing, though. The first mention of lore is tricky because 
well, as we mentioned, there's multiple names for Lord. Lord of Light is used exclusively in, in A Game of Thrones. So my guess is George hadn't decided to call the Lord of Light R'hllor yet, because that name does not appear in book one at all. But, twists, George has used the name R'hllor since before he ever wrote A Song of Ice and Fire. So he had definitely come up with the name. He just hadn't applied it to A Song of Ice and Fire yet. You know we love the deep cuts here at History of Westeros Podcast. And this absolutely qualifies. This quote is George R. R. Martin himself that we're about to read from Dream Songs, Volume 1, Chapter 4, a.k.a. The Heirs of Turtle Castle, where he speaks of his early interest in a fanzine called Cortana. Cortana was big on prose rather than comics. Now, George loves comics, but he can't draw, so he was more drawn to Cortana and submitted a story to it for publication in what seems to have been 1967. Here it is. Dark Gods of Corhuban, I called it. And yes, my version of Mordor sounds like a brand of coffee. <laughs> my heroes were the usual pair of mismatched adventurers, melancholy exile, R'hllor of Raug, and his boisterous, swaggering companion, Argalak the Arrogant. Yeah, so the real first mention of R'hllor was in Dark Gods of Corhuban. Argalak dies in this story because of his arrogance. So George was killing off characters even when he was like writing in college. <laughs> but R'hllor escapes to tell the tale and live another day. George goes on to point out that though his submission was accepted, it was the last issue of Cortana. Cortana didn't put out another issue after that. So dang it. Is, is the real first a Song of Ice and Fire character to ever die? Argalak the arrogant? <laughs> could be, could be, yeah. First named character. <laughs> So George did start another R'hllor story only to abandon it because his college roommates found it. He was just sitting there on his table and they started reading it out loud and he was kind of chagrined. What's funny is he wrote it in purple. Like he had a purple pen and he wrote it in purple. And here in our document, whenever Shay is going to read a quote, she marks it in purple and she didn't know about that. So it's also purple in our document. And here's the description. In the second, my exile prince finds himself in the Dothrak Empire, where he joins Baron of the Bloody Blade <laughs> to fight the winged demons who slew his grandsire, King Barristan the Bold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not two, not three, but four familiar names. Dothrak, Baron of the Bloody Blade instead of Brandon of the Bloody Blade, King Barristan the Bold, and of course, Relore. I would say the winged demons aren't too far off either from other things he's described. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. You can't go wrong with a winged demon here or there. They're always, they're always good to add on, right? You know, I got to say, this reminds me a little bit. When I played D&D as a kid, as an adult, uh, <laughs> you know, there would be a, a cool character would arise. You know, a character that someone played or an NPC in the world. And we would keep bringing it back. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even if it was like a different setting or time yeah. period or, you know, but that personality, that idea, that image or whatever... Would, would would recur in our D&D stories. I, I imagine George writing did something very similar, you know? Yeah. He had an idea for a character and he was just trying to find the right spot for its home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so there was also a book published by Roger Zelazny, who we mentioned, I think it was last time or the time before, the Nine Princes in Amber series. Yeah, George is a big fan. Yeah, so that's a big deal, right? So he wrote a book called Lord of Light. And it was also in 1967, the same year as this Cortana and all this other stuff happened. 
And I've read this book. I've read Lord of Light. Here's the description from Goodreads. It says, Earth is long since dead. On a colony planet, a band of men has gained control of technology, made themselves immortal, and now rule their world as the gods of the Hindu pantheon. Only one dares oppose them. He who was once Siddhartha and is now Mahasamatan, binder of demons, Lord of Light. So basically they're high-tech, making regular humans look like gods and they impose their will on a planet of people who don't know better. They don't know that it's technology. They think, they think they're real gods. Pretty cool book. Anyway, and surely George is right because... Depending on how you define God, that might be real God. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, someone, and, and someone can kill the human and take their place. And the regular people have no idea that happened because they're using the same technology to project themselves. Like, boy, seems a little angrier today. Or it seems <laughs> like, you know, but they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't know. So... Uh, now, so here's the first mention of Lord of Light, which is, as we said, there was no mention of Relore in the first book. So this is Daenerys 1, Game of Thrones, right off the bat. May the Lord of Light shower you with blessings on, his most, on this most fortunate day, Princess Daenerys, the magister said as he took her hand, bowed his head, showing a thin glimpse of crooked yellow teeth through the gold of his beard. So there's Red Priest in that scene as well. So right in Danny's first chapter, you've got mention of the Lord of Light, Red priests, and that's important because as we've been over many times within different POVs, the stuff that's in those first few chapters is a really big deal because George is using those elements to set up future stories. Remember, he originally planned it to be a trilogy, so he was packing more in those early chapters, more of those elements that needed to apply later. And of course, he slowed down and spread things out more, but that still leaves those early chapters as unusually thick with what's to come references to what's to come. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, the it isn't just the Lord of Light or R'hllor. There's also the Red God, kind of the most basic nickname. Now, that name doesn't throw us off too much. There isn't like an earlier mention of Red God. I mean, Daenerys won a Game of Thrones. You can't really get much earlier than that in the book, right? Just for fun also, the fiery heart of R'hllor sigil is all over the Southwest U.S., as a Catholic symbol, it's a real, it's, it doesn't have the stag in it, <laughs> but it's the fire, just a heart with f- flame all around. And there's a lot of different versions of that. When I was in Santa Fe, I saw them, like every gift shop had these things. I bought you, one and gave it to Radio Westeros. <laughs> do you think that's why that's an emoji? Is it, is it, or you think, I wonder if it's a reference, in fact, to that. Uh, there's, a, there's a fiery red heart emoji that came out in the last year and a lot of people in the fandom were obviously like, it's the Valor, you know, symbol. And I, Kind of just thought it was because, you know, people use hearts and fire enough that like a fiery heart, but maybe it's meant to be a Catholic symbol. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Relore is prominent in a lot of POVs. Some of these you'll know right away, like Davos. Clearly, that's probably the most prominent. Melisandre's one chapter, of course, big there. John, not early on, but of course, once Stannis and Melisandre and Sleece get to the wall, Relore becomes a big part of his story. Sam as well, but only briefly because Sam's leaves the wall right around the same time that stuff is happening. So he doesn't get too deep into it. He's aware of it, but it's not like circling around him. It's not swirling around his, his arc currently. Arya, it was showing up for her and now it's coming back because she was around Jockin right away who mentioned the Red God to her. He, she saved him from burning the burning cart, which he claims, okay, you have to pay three lives to, to the Red God for that. The burning cart? That's not far from the burning heart. <laughs> <laughs> True. And then, of course, she spends time with the Brother Without Banners who have adopted R'hllor. Once she flees to Bravos, she gets away from it. But there is a Red Temple in Bravos. It does come up, so that'll come back for us as well. 
Same thing with Tyrion. Early on, he's barely even heard of Relore. Doesn't come up. Red God, non, you know, nothing. Doesn't matter. But then in A Dance with Dragons, once he goes to Essos, boom, just everywhere. Constant. He goes to Volantis, sees the huge red temple that blows his mind. He sees Benero preaching. Yeah, he, he gets a fire hose of R'hllor stuff. Or a fire hose of... What is fire hose? Okay, that works. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the Water hose. I was trying to do the reverse of water. It's like, no, it's already it's fire. Yeah. <laughs> a Victorian, of course, has plenty of red god stuff later once he scoops Makoro out of the sea. Asha as well, because she's with Stannis now. And likewise, Theon, because also, he's also with Stannis, uh, starting in The Winds of Winter. So there's quite a lot you can see. And most of these are recent additions to that, and they've come in strong. So like a good half the POVs now have a major presence of lore. You'll notice I didn't mention Daenerys, even though the Lord of Light was the first mention, that one mention of Lord of Light was the first mention of it in the entire series. It hasn't happened again once, not once, never again does Lord of Light or Relore appear in Danny's chapters. Not once. She thinks of Red ah. Priests one time, one time. So it's really, it's kind of like how Iron Bank is sneakily missing from Arya's chapters. Even when she's in the heart of Bravos, not once does Iron Bank appear. So this is kind of like that where I think George is trying to keep us from thinking about these connections a little too much. And he's going to bring... It's storytelling reasons. Kind of like how he didn't have Ned Stark think about John's parentage, right? That's a little more blatant. <laughs> but not that it's... I'm not complaining. I'm just saying this is a little... This is sneakier, <laughs> right? Because you know, you notice that Ned doesn't think... You're waiting for him to think more about John. It just doesn't happen. Here, I don't know if people are sitting there waiting for Danny to think about the Lord of Light. They might be waiting for Melisandre to finally take notice of Danny. But that's the other way around. So that's pretty interesting, huh? Other places it doesn't come up, which might be also telling. Brand's chapters. Now, there wouldn't be a lot of reason for Brand to be thinking about that. But that just goes to show it, it fits. The fact that it hasn't been mentioned just fits really well, given where Brand's been and what he's doing. It's natural that it hasn't come up, but it's probably going to. Certainly, Melisandre has seen him in her visions and sees him as a demon. She saw him with his wolf head, and his howling, and Blood Raven with his wooden face. They're coming together at some point. Just uh, It's got to be pretty soon. One mention total in all Cersei's chapters. That's it. Jamie, Sansa, Catelyn, pretty much nothing. Which is interesting for Catelyn because she's now, you know, imbued with the power of Relor, but she doesn't have POVs anymore. John Connington, pretty much nothing. Quentin, eh, a little bit. Barristan, not really. Halden, Halfmaster, is surprised that Tyrion hadn't heard of Benero, the, the head priest of the Red Temple in Delantis. He's like, you haven't heard of him? <laughs> so, so people in Essos, there's a clever way for George to show that everyone's heard of Benero, <laughs> you know, when, if you're from Essos. Tyrion's the exception here. Tyrion had only heard of Thoros. And Thoros was sent to Westeros as an attempt to get Red Pre, you know, Relorism working in Westeros. They had tried before, it didn't work. At first it was like, hey, Ares, that guy likes fire. You know, maybe, maybe we can bring him on didn't work well, for whatever reason. Thoros did get along really well with Robert, though, not because of the fire stuff, because they were drinking buddies. <laughs> it still didn't work, though. It still didn't bring... <laughs> Robert didn't give a crap about the Red God, as far as we know. I don't think he gave a crap about religion, to be fair. Not yeah, you're right. Not yeah. about the Red God, per se, but <laughs> True, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Red God has been in ports for some time. Like Old Town, probably Gull Town isn't explicitly mentioned. King's Landing is probably something there. It isn't listed. There isn't some, you know central list of all the places that there's a red temple. But they still, you know, they haven't moved inland. There aren't like red temples 
in the center of the reach that we know of. They're all pretty much just for sailors, people who want a place to worship their, their familiar gods. But to people who are living in Westeros, that's not really a thing. What's allowing R'hllor to catch on now? Because it is catching on now. I think it's the same reason that it caught on with Stan. It's the real power. They're like, well, we can't deny that's real. It's resurrecting people and you're, you're not cold? And Melisandre's standing there and she's warm and she's not wearing any robes. They're like, this is real power. It's just blatant and obvious and recurring and they can't not, they can't just ignore that. Yeah, not gonna lie, if I was living in the North and I saw someone who just wasn't cold, <laughs> that would be really appealing to me. Yeah, I'd be like, like, what do I have to do to not be cold right now? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want to take away from that point because, I, you know, it is something I have been thinking about because it does seem like we've gotten this you know, at least a perspective. A perspective can clearly be skewed, as you just pointed out, yeah, right? Yeah. But given that, it does seem like there is a rise in popularity, power, whatever of of the of lore. And but if the reason for that is because it's seems to have real power, and is the real power arising to a greater extent than it used to, mm-hmm. or is it just yeah. better known? Or is there a push by priests to spread the word, whether or not the power was there before or not? I don't know. I bring this up probably because there's real power with the old gods too. True. But it's not like there's a rise in worship of the old gods, as far as I can tell. Again, no. that's yeah, and, fact, it might be also, but you're right. there, it there's no that's probably a function of the way that their sort of church is set up. You got red you got red priests out here advocating and and preaching at every night fire, at every port. There's not a single priest of the old gods out here saying anything to anyone. <laughs> and they're only yeah. like getting in Bran's dreams and think that's the only thing they do, right? So Melisandre comes and burns the tree at the Weirwood at Storm's End. No pushback, no consequences that we know of, you know, and it's, that's, that's, a, that's a sign, right? She burned a Weirwood and suffered no It's like Euron. Euron proved that kinslaying isn't hated by the gods. Like, I did it and they didn't do anything to me. So are we really sure that kinslaying is such a big deal, you know? Yet. Yet. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's the part he's not, he's missing, is the gods don't work. And Melisandre's missing. So, yeah, they don't work on the same timeline that uh, humanity works on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about core beliefs, core beliefs of the worshippers of R'hllor. Here's Melisandre explaining the gist of it to an imprisoned Onion Knight. And of course, this is particularly interesting because he's there in prison because he wanted to kill her. Yet, she isn't mad at him. She's still just, I'm using this as a recruitment opportunity, which is one of the things that makes her a very compelling character. I like this scene a lot. Here it goes. The war has been waged since time began. And before it is done, all men must choose where they will stand. On one side is R'hllor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow. Against him stands the Great Other, whose name may not be spoken, the Lord of Darkness, the Soul of Ice, the God of Night and Terror. Ours is not a choice between Baratheon and Lannister, between Greyjoy and Stark. It is death we choose, or life, darkness or light. She clasped the bars of his cell with her slender white hands. The great ruby at her throat seemed to pulse with its own radiance. So tell me, Sir Davos Seaworth, and tell me truly, does your heart burn with the shining light of R'hllor? Or is it black and cold and full of worms? 
she reached through the bars and laid three fingers upon his breast as if to feel the truth of him through flesh and wool and leather. My heart, Davo said slowly, is full of doubts. <laughs> That's a good response. <laughs> My heart is full of doubts. Yeah. It's a speech a lot like Gior Mormont's is to Jon Snow, where he says, do you really think our war is more important? Is like Lannister, Barat, is it, does they really think that's more important than this? And that convinces John because he's actually seen the dead walk. That's, it's a more convincing from his point of view. He's seen these things from Davos is in a prison cell. He hasn't seen the dead walk. He doesn't know about any of that stuff. So his heart is full of doubts. How had he seen the dead walk? Had he seen the others or anything like that? He might be like, all right, I kind of see where you're coming from. He might at least be a little more willing to, to understand. Maybe if he'd seen Melisandre do something crazy like birth the shadow baby. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so ironically, the first dead person to see walk for a lot of people might be Jon Snow. <laughs> Johnson might be the first dead walking, but that's still a big deal. It doesn't matter who the thing. If you see the dead walk, whoa, you know, that, and that's real power if it's coming from Melisandre, if she's the one to do it. It's also kind of badass, like Melisandre, I mean. Like she convinces Davos. She's so convinced Davos is a good man that she's not worried that he was going to kill her. Yeah. I'm going to convince him not to do that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> She's just ooh, really... Con- That's the kind of confidence that really only comes from belief in a high... Like super, super sincere belief in a higher power. Like really powerful faith. And you just... Nope, I have no concerns. God's going to take care of that. <laughs> right? Every morning, Melisandre wakes up and checks for danger to her own person. That's what we see in her chapter. So presumably on this day, when she's talking to Davos, she's already checked. She's like, nah, he's not going to get me. And, and even later, she does all these cool things like really worry about Davos. She like wants to protect his son. She, she doesn't think the son is like important for some greater role. She just wants him to live and not to have Davos to suffer. There doesn't seem to be any, any magic about it or any karma or dharma. It's just purely just a human thing to do, which is a really neat part of her character because she's kind of inhuman in a lot of ways, <laughs> given she's so zealous and so magical and beyond a normal lifespan and age and all these other things. Those are the most, among the most intriguing moments of the book when you do see the human side of Melisandre. Her, yeah. her, her, her chapter is one of the most interesting ones of the whole series to me. I agree. When we found out she was having going to have a chapter, it was like, whoa, that was a surprise. She says at one point, the Lord of Light cherishes, cherishes the innocent. There is no sacrifice more precious. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> when she's, first, she's saying all these other things like, oh, okay, I can kind of believe you there. And then she says that, and you're like, what is that setting up? A certain child burning or and something, something else awful? That can't, that can't end well, right? <laughs> so getting deeper into what they believe. It's a dualistic religion. R'hllor versus the great other. Light, heat, and life versus ice and death. The two are in an eternal struggle, a bit like, say, the storm god and the drowned god. But there is a prophesied ending, which I think makes it one of the only religions, if not the only religion in the universe, with a specific eschatology and messianic figure. That's a note from Nina. And it's a really good take because, yeah, who else has, like, an avatar? Who else has, like, a, like a Jesus-type figure, a son-of-god-type being that was sent to save everyone? Which is what Azor Ahai is, according to the prophecy. Someone come to, come to earth, sent by God to save everyone. And they need your help, though. They can't do it alone. Same with, you know, that is basically a messianic figure, right? And, but there aren't any other versions of that in Planetos that we can, that we're aware of. May, they may exist, we just don't know them. And it does seem to be building the whole story. Yeah, well, to, to be clear, I mean, like, there's, there's 
other Azoria high type figures, it's just not clear to us whether within their religion, their sure, messianic. sure. There's no explicitly other religion that has a messianic figure. Yeah, but yeah, but but with between all other of those, cultures believe in an Azoria high type figure. Yeah, right. And, and my point is that within their religion, it's possible that there is that role. We just don't know. Yeah, so exactly. I just want to be clear Absolutely. on that. that There's there a lot of religions that haven't been explored or George hasn't told us about them. So yeah, there's definitely room for that. But what makes it, it that makes it stand out in a storytelling way because that is a big part of what is building up here in the story is a final conflict of sorts between humanity and the others and a religion that has prophesied a final apocalyptic conflict is is going to seem correct to a lot of people in the world. They're like, oh, they're the ones that predicted this. They're the ones that saw this coming. They've been writing about this for 5,000, 10,000 years. We should be on board. It's all coming true. All the things they've been saying. That would bring a lot of people into the folds. Making a prediction and having it come true, that's going to sell people. I mean, that works. Like, that's proof of concept. That's pretty interesting. And as is the case with a lot of singular evil gods or villains, his name is not to be spoken. He's the great other. It's a nickname. You find this as a recurring thing in the real world and in, you know, fictional stories, Wheel of Time, Harry Potter, you know, he who should not be named. There's that concept reoccurs. It makes me like Euron more. I mean, I, I don't like the Greyjoys or the Ironborn in general, but I, I like that part of Euron is I'll do it. I'll, I'll kill him. <laughs> I don't believe I'll say the nonsense. name. Yeah. Watch. I'll show you. Yeah. What's his real name? What name can't I say? Let me say that. Whisper it in my ear. I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yell it. Night fires are a big feature of the, their worship they, since they believe that every day is a gift that you have to worship and pray all through the night to make sure R'hllor brings the day again. And for that reason, a lot of red priests are nocturnal. They sleep during the day and, and stay up at night and tend the fires at night, which is kind of like, yeah, that's a pretty good gig, actually. <laughs> 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 but an extremely critical point for R'hllorism that you must grasp to understand its appeal and function within the story is that it is a religion of the masses. It's antithetical to the nobility in many ways. Hey, you might say a lot of religions are religions of the masses, if not most, especially in real life. But this is going even farther than that. It's, it's even more like that than others. Aegon the Conqueror took on the seven as his religion in order to facilitate his rule of the seven kingdoms. He wanted to adopt the same religion as the people he was ruling. We don't see that in Essos that we know of. The rulers of Bravos and Volantis and Pentos aren't worshippers of R'hllor that we know of. At least it's not their only religion that they follow, which R'hllor demands to be the only god. So if they're paying lip service to multiple gods and they're kind of doing like the wildlings or the others are doing their own version, but they're like, yeah, Victorian's version where, yeah, no, our other gods aren't demons. We don't agree with you on that part. But yes, R'hllor is one of them. You know, we'll add him to our pantheon. That's, that's, that's as far as they're willing to go. But that's still really interesting. Like they're this back and forth between the power of the nobility and the power of the clergy. That's a real world thing. Endless battle across time and religions and regions and nations, fictional or not. But again, it's more true of Rolorism given that. Because for example, this thing we'll get into a little deeper later in the episode, but at least in Volantis, and in other places like Ashai, and maybe everywhere. If you're an acolyte, or a red priest, or a temple sex worker, or a temple warrior, you're a slave. From the highest level to the lowest level, you're a slave. 
nobility aren't going to go for that. That doesn't work for that. Like you have to enslave yourself to be a member of this temple. That's just that's a that's a bridge too far for people that hold that much social power and that much political power to declare themselves slaves and to give all that up. You do see that in the real world sometimes, right? You see like kings that are super devout Christians or rulers who are extremely devout Muslims, etc. You've seen lots of versions of that, you know, almost every world religion has something like that in its past. But that isn't, we don't see like these high-ranking kings of, that worship or lore. It's just, Stannis is kind of an outlier. And even he isn't technically sitting, he isn't actually seated on the throne. So that's a really important difference here. The way, like it is in the real world, the way people follow a religion varies from place to place and time to time. But as far as we know, this has been the case for a long time. The way Rolorism works makes it tough for the rich and powerful to accept and to embrace because of the way it's constructed. It explicitly doesn't allow for some of the behaviors and powers that a rich noble would enjoy in their day-to-day life. Like in the real world, like a lot of times what you'd see is you'd see like a big powerful family take their eldest son and groom him to rule and send like a younger son into the church to become like a bishop or to have power in the church so the family is protected on both sides. Like we've got, we've got power in the church, we've got power with you know, our swords and shields and, and political power. The seven doesn't have the same level of power that the medieval Christian church had, but it's pretty powerful. And there you see the examples like this, like House Hightower did place people very high in the church hierarchy, still do, including the High Septon. Several High Septons have been High Towers. Of course, they conveniently lose their last name, <laughs> which you think that sometimes the nobility might think the nobility might actually want that level of protection so people forget what house they came from. We almost had a fray High Septon. Remember that, folks? The, the High Septon, before the High Sparrow came storming in and was just like elected by popular acclaim, the fray guy was... was had the inner inside track to getting that job. So that would have been, that would have been really something. Thinking about Lancel. Mm. He is a wealthy, powerful family, you know, member of the nobility, but still kind of abandons it all for a religion, not real lore. But it's worth noting that we do see this other religion rising, even though they don't have real power like real lore yeah. seems to. So you're right. The faith um, is on the rise again. If the same reason yeah. for lore is all this desperation and upheaval. and yeah. We also might have a skewed perspective of how much the faith is on the rise because we're seeing it from the perspective of noble families. That's true. Who Most of might the feel more are, threatened by yeah. it or more, more important when they're family members, but maybe the total numbers aren't as big or I, I, it's hard to say that. Especially but Cersei. It, it's just, <laughs> yes, yeah. It's something that, to keep in mind, I guess. So anyway, kind of continuing along that thought, is it in the church or in religion or whatever, there's more of a cap on power. There's mm. power there. And probably the average person who is struggling for food, becoming a priest who is provided for, they're probably fundamentally given food in a home, right? Once you're at, at that level of priesthood, the, the church has the ability to levy taxes of sorts, you know, they, they, do, they do have certain powers, you know. So that amount of power compared to the average common or peasant or whatever is pretty good and pretty high and something maybe to strive for. And, but for the average noble family would be a downgrade. So mm, you yeah, can see yeah, right. now maybe higher levels, higher echelons of the church, you know, that now you start to get more to the level of nobility, but not to the level of king, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Also, we've talked about this before, too. I think it's been a long time. I remember we had a discussion one time about the idea that Taiwan, I think we were talking about Taiwan at the time. It doesn't be Taiwan per se. But in a way, the hand of the king 
has more power than a king. It, 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 it's, it's a tricky discussion, but the idea is that the king or, or, or people in political positions have certain limitations on their life, like both in this fantasy Martin world and in the real world. Yeah. You know, you, there's just people taking pictures of you all the time. There's every <laughs> action you take, you're being judged for everything you do. You have a certain reputation to maintain, an image to uphold, and, and you're, you know, ostensibly held to a higher standard. Now, you can just be corrupt. You can shrug it off. You can, you know, use your power more manipulatively. But on some level, people make some attempt to live up to their position, mm-hmm. which means it is more difficult to commit terrible crimes or, or even pay even lesser crimes. Just being mean to someone, you know, is like tougher to get away with. It, obviously, not that you can't, but Tywin as the hand can talk bad about some other house where Robert as the king can't. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. Tywin can like, you know, screw, those, screw that family. They're all dumb or they're ugly or, you know, he has certain liberties that the king doesn't, but still has similar power. Anyway, yeah. point is, Kind of like that in religion. Mm. You like you can't have this wealth ostensibly. You're supposed to be giving to the poor people. You commit can't commit these crimes. You, you kind of have to rein your life in, right? To follow the rules of the church if you want to be a leader of the church. So that might be another reason certain members of nobility are like, I don't want to have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, here, here's a great. That's that, th- I had a, this note later in the episode, but given what you've just said, it fits really well here. Tyrion makes this point. You know, he, it's kind of a, he says it kind of rudely, but he's give me the priests that are just sitting in the back and just abuse people and collect money. He's obviously doesn't prefer, he doesn't want those people in charge, but he's, they're better than the zealots. He's, he'd rather have them than the zealots. The ones who actually believe in gods cause way more trouble than the ones that just sit in the back and abuse a few people and, and steal money. They're more likely to start a war. Yeah. They're more likely to be burning people at the stake. Exactly. Likely, you know. And so he says yeah. that. And maybe. And yeah. Rolorism, that's the problem with Rolorism. It's, it's specifically designed for that. The priests are all like, you don't, rise high in the Red Temple with that. Maybe you do in some places. Maybe you do in Bravos because they're not, they can't be as hardcore because of the way slavery laws work. But in Volantis, for sure, there aren't any, there's no church hierarchy that is soft and not really a believer. You just, it, this, it's too hardcore. These are, these are uh, devout, these are heavy believers, heavy worshipers, hardcore, like barefoot, you know, burning themselves, you know, all the, like, they are not the, in it for the political power types. And that is something that's really important to note about this, this religion, at least in its current state. Generally, what you said is true, but it doesn't mean there can't be corruption. It oh, doesn't yeah, mean there right. can't be a someone who is ambitious and manipulative who realizes, I'll play this game of relore to get into this position. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll call myself a slave, but I'm going to make sure I have a full belly at night. I'm going to make yeah. sure that you know my priest, my home, my, my circle gets the greater benefit. I, this is a thought I had for later on too, but I think the idea of everyone is a slave, a lot of the thoughts about Relore remind me of the animal farm. Like, mm-hmm. we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guarantee you some of those slaves have nicer clothes, yeah. nicer transportation, mm-hmm. nicer homes, et cetera. You know? And you wonder too, but at the top, at the really high church hierarchy, are they just people still though? What I mean by that, Melisandre is, has been transformed. She's not, some magical power has altered her. So you can't fake that. That's what, that's part of what I'm getting at. If you have to like magically alter yourself or go through some sort of process, there's no fake in that. You could still use it for your own benefits, but it's, it's more of a commitment than just, I don't know, saying some words, getting on your knees, praying, spend doing a vigil, you know, those kind of things. You can fake that, but yeah, it's a little harder. I guess it's a little harder to fake when you're going through like actual magic rituals or, or whatever. We don't know. We don't really know exactly what's happening, <laughs> but something happened. One other thing I try to keep in mind for this, 
for discussing this 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 world. Yeah. And and the comment by Tyrion is re- a really good point of it. Is that a lot of our judgments are based on our world and our experiences, our morality, our society. But what if in our world there was this real magical power? Mm. It it changes things, you know. Even without well, arguably, obviously, this is like a you know. A, a discussion of history, but <laughs> yeah. you know, whether or not there's really God, whether he has real power, whether the miracles of, of you know, Jesus and you know, other religions too, but it, it, we don't seem to be able to clearly observe them or prove them in modern times, at least, you know, but they really are true in this world. Yeah. So if in modern times, if God came out of the sky, if God parted the clouds and floated down to the white house and said, you all need to vote for Biden or whatever it is. You, know, like, <laughs> you would have, some people still might not accept it or believe it or they're willing to go to hell, but there would just be a shift in how we evaluate things. Yeah. At a minimum, there would oh, be yeah. a huge shift in how the world evaluates things. So in this world, when there really is this power over lore and dragons and, and on and on, I can see why maybe Stannis does burn people alive. You know what I mean? It's, it's better it's, than it's the alternative. Judge him. Yeah. Right. It's easy to judge him when you don't understand or believe in this real definitive power that he is faced with. And Tyrion kind of reflects that there. He's like, give me the priests that just sit in the back and, you know, they're corrupt. You know, they're not good people, but they're not going to be radical and start wars. But maybe if there's freaking zombies coming, we need to start a war, right? Maybe relore, Mm -hmm. you know, even if it seems bad. That's what Mel's saying. Yeah, yeah. Right. Even if it seems bad for the status quo, even if it seems bad for stability, even if it seems bad for the lives of innocents, it might be good for the future of humanity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point, good point. So Stannis isn't just an outlier in Westeros as far as we know. He might be an outlier, period. Meaning, when else have we seen a ruler just get in good with the Red Priests and use their power to their own ends? I suspect that's part of the problem. The Red Priests aren't just going to prop up some ruler and give them their power to do with what they want. Stannis is getting Melisandre's power because she thinks he's Azora High. This isn't just some, uh, we're going to team up and my magic and priest power with your blood claim and Baratheon name, we can do great things together. That doesn't, she's, there was that thought that people thought, maybe that's what Melisandre's angle is. Once we saw inside her head, though, those th- all that went away. No chance of that. We saw her sincerity from her own POV. And that just, all those theories went out the window. Stannis also, by the way, he's not this corrupt figure. No, he's you know, not. It, he's, even if yeah. he's misguided or mean or whatever, it, he's not angling with corruption to take over because he's ambitious. Right, he might be putting, he might be mis understanding the importance of claims versus humanity, but he's not doing it for gain. He's not trying to enrich himself. But yeah, yeah, I'll follow you for sure. So it's going to be curious when and if Makoro meets Danny and tries to win her over in a manner similar. Like, he can also be like, yes, you're Azora High. I'm going to tell you the same kind of things that Melisandre told Stannis, and you're the prophesied savior of the world. And if she believes that, if she's convinced, then, well, I don't know what she'll do, but she might be more amenable to the type of rule or a type of seeing regular people and treating regular people decently, like the Red Priest would require and that Danny would do that. Both arcs point north towards the others, right? I mean, Valorism is notable for its coverage of so many opposing themes, right? So, these things can come to a head and come together even by accident. 
<laughs> it would be really f- interesting for Danny to arrive in the North when Stannis is still alive. I don't think that's going to happen, but it could. And boy, that would be that would be wild. What if Makoro meets Melisandre? How will that go? No idea. But consider ancient Valyria, Danny and her dragons. Relorists see dragons as symbols of fire. Well, Relorists see everything as a symbol of Relor. The whole world was created by Relor, but of course, a dragon, a being of fire, they're going to particularly want to be like, yeah, that's that's right there in Relor's wheelhouse, like volcanoes and the doom of Valyria. All these other things, Relor would they would would probably say is comes from their god. This is easy to look and understand this connection. But the Valyrians, as far as we know, didn't see it the other way around. They didn't see R'hllor as deity to their dragons. They had Valyrian gods and they worshipped them. If any noble country, any nobility of any nation were going to embrace R'hllor, it might have been the Valyrians, but even they didn't. Again, probably because of this whole power dynamic thing where the Valyrians were mad powerful. They wielded so much power and I don't think that the Red Priest's dogma would allow for that. <laughs> so it just doesn't work. So that's part of why they tolerated them, like they tolerated other religions, but they mostly probably just ignored them. We've never heard of, like, Aegon the Conqueror didn't have anything to do with them that we know of, and, you know, he would have lived around them, or his ancestors would have, rather. And, yeah, a lot of, it's an open question, a big open question, thing we'll continue to explore throughout this episode is what is the connection between the Valyrians and Relorism? And what is the Relorism's, what do Relorists see the dragons as? Obviously, Melisandre expects Stannis to wake dragons from stone. So she sees dragons as part of the whole thing. Part of the defeat of the Great Other involves dragons, waking them from stone, which Danny has already done. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, that's a whole big ball of, of theory and mystery that I love to think about. You inspired another little thought on me, by the way, the, the idea that it is easy for R'hllor when, when it's like light and shadow. Well, like, what is not light or shadow? Right? It's pretty <laughs> yeah. easy for them to <laughs> incorporate things into their religion when you're so generic in your fundamental belief. I started wondering how they would incorporate other gods or demons into their belief. Like the drowned god, I think would be in the shadows underwater. There's no light getting to it. So that's a demon. You know, I, yeah. that, I mean, that's a, too big of a tangent, but I wonder if you could yeah. go through and think of the different gods and how Relore would interpret them. Uh, yeah. The answer being almost all of them demons, right? I <laughs> bet that's what like red priests or young red acolytes, whatever they're called, they sit around, they debate like when they're in their mm-hmm. little version of seminary and they're like, debate the nature of shadow. <laughs> is a shadow yeah, yeah. as well? If, if it's total darkness, is that just one giant shadow? Or is that, you know, like when the moon puts its shadow and it covers the entire earth or the sun, that's a shadow. That's a giant freaking shadow. You would, if the entire world is cast in darkness, I don't know. You know. Hmm. There's degrees of shadow too. Like just a shadow doesn't make something become completely black and covered. Yeah. Unless there's a complete loss of light. So something is partly in a shadow or anyway. Yeah, yeah. that's neat. <laughs> so let's talk. I'm not joining Relore. I'm not debating this. Yeah, we're not in Relore's. <laughs> Seminary school. It's RSS. <laughs> oh my God. Relore controls all podcasts. <laughs> ah, it's a terrifying discovery. All right, let's, let's delve into some real world religions for a minute. I'm sure you all have heard the comparison of Zoroastrianism to Relorism. And I was a little surprised. I hadn't studied much about Zoroastrianism. And I was a little surprised at what, what, what I found here. The comparisons aren't what I thought they would be. To start off, Zoroastrianism has, it's kind of hard word to say, Zoroastrianism has pretty much nothing to do with fire. So that right there was like, I was expecting more fire stuff, but pretty much nothing there. 
It's more about some of these other things, which we'll see here. It's Iranian in origin. It's one of the oldest faiths. It goes back possibly to 2000 BC. It enters the historical record around 650 BC. So there's a lot of historical fog in that, in that region there. Their god of Zoroastrianism is called Ahura Mazda, lord of wisdom, lord of things. Predicts good, it, it predicts that good will triumph over evil, as in Relor will eventually defeat the great other. It does predict a final conflict and a victory for good. When this occurs, all souls that have died throughout all history will rejoin Ahura Mazda and live forever, which is really similar to what Benero says. This is Halden reporting on what he's heard. And here's the quote. Benero had sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is a Zora High return, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting her cause shall be reborn. So yeah, you go. Rejoining the souls will, death itself will bend its knee, live forever. Souls joining Ahura Mazda, so that's, that's pretty similar. The ultimate purpose of Zoroastrianism is to bring happiness to the world to help with that battle. So you should, to, if you're a follower of Zoroaster, your job is to bring happiness to the world because happiness helps fight that end battle. Kind of cool, actually. <laughs> not, the worst, uh, not the worst religion I've ever heard. However, early Zoroastrianism had a tenet to eliminate evil species, which that's not so good because who decides what's an evil species? You can easily see that being like the point at a certain people like a certain skin color or certain other worshipers of a different God be like, that's an evil species. Get them, you know? Uh, yeah. Or just people on the other side of the river or yeah. whatever, the people in the land that we want to have. Yes. Very abusable. <laughs> they must be evil. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. abusable <laughs> tenet of the religion there. That's not so good. So they, they, they venerated nature. They have a huge influence on other world religions. Zoroastrianism may be the first appearance of angels and demons, heaven and hell. They didn't call it heaven, but it was basically heaven. It was an after, a good afterlife and a bad afterlife. Hell, same kind of same thing. They believed in judgment after death and in free will. So there wasn't destiny, which is a pretty important religious concept, whether you have free will or destiny. Zoroaster is also known as Zarathustra. You've maybe heard the book Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is also hard to say. He was the prophet that founded it. He claims Ahura Mazda was omniscient, but not omnipotent, which is why Ahura Mazda needs help fighting evil and thus acts through agents called Ahuras. So if you're the, like the higher being in this religion, you are an Ahura, kind of like an angel. And this fits really well with our Azor Ahai headcanon. There are multiple Azor Ahais because there's lots of Ahuras. There's multiple Ahuras, and these are the top agents of fighting evil. Including so, yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, Ahura, yes, also. Yes, Ahura, also fought star, yeah. <laughs> and Sean, you looked into this concept called Asha a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, I, had, I didn't know that much about Zoroastrianism. I, what my, the vague ideas in my head were that it seemed to have heavily influenced the Abrahamic religions. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. The, this, this shifting of, you know, the Greek gods with this, you know, lightning in the ocean and everything else, rather than there's one god. And it and it there is a parallel evil, a Satan. That all, all these things you just said, yeah, almost everything you said, if you had just been talking about like Judaism, a lot of that would have fit. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, change the names. names sort of, yeah, yeah. It's both a concept and a character in Zoroastrianism called Asha. And, and to be I, clear, I, I it is spelled. It, it is Asha spelled like Asha Greyjoy. Yeah. So just in case that's yeah, not clear, folks. But I was like keying in on it because I was going to bring it up later when we talked about Ashai because it's. Such a similar oh. S H A, right? Yeah, you're right. And it's it, this 
it's this idea, it's something along the lines of truth. Okay, but it's that's not, if you kind of think about, I don't know, putting a puzzle together, like there's only one way for these pieces to fit into these pieces. So that's like truthful, but it's also correct. It like mm. works right. So you see those in the same kind of realm. Yeah. I think that, you know, maybe even should argue that like, justice and truth are correct that they should be part of the universe as much as gravity or an inertia or something like anyway i think that's yeah yeah I'm, i know i'm not doing the best job explaining it but that's kind of the concept of vasha right on but also it's a figure and that figure is very associated with light and mm. fire light brings out the truth reveals the truth fire creates light anyway i could go on and on where you could read a wikipedia <laughs> learn more than i can explain yeah, right now we've but anyway some people to check it out yeah when it's called a shy by the shadow, yes. and if Asha represents fire, light, oh, truth, the shadow, the despai, uh, I wonder if that's at least part of what was in Martin's brain when he was named. That's a great catch. I like that. Yeah, that, that's very fitting. Yeah, one thing that is is kind of an opposition to that, not not in disagreement, but in opposition, like mirror image, opposing the Zoroastrian is big on, like I said, protection of the elements, protection of like ecology, but. Earth, fire, air, and water. They wanted to, those elements needed to be preserved properly. Ashai is where those things have just gone to hell. The water you can't drink. There's no mm. kids. There's no animals because they, it's just toxic or whatever. It's not entirely certain why, but for the animals, it's because of the toxicity. The shadow is some sort of strange blight on the land. It's not fully explained. It could be magical. But yeah, so yeah, this is where they see the opposite way. So Unrelated to Zoroastrianism, but related to Persia and Iran, which is where this comes from, are the Immortals, which you may have seen in the movie 300, <laughs> wearing weird masks, which they were a real thing, though. They were not, they didn't really have those masks, but they were a unit of 10,000 men. Some people think that number was exaggerated, but it was formed in the time of Cyrus the Great by and ruled by a woman named Pantea Arteshbot. She may have founded this, this unit, which is, is kind of cool. And so they were, the way they functioned was there's 10,000 of them, and whenever one would die, they would immediately put a replacement in. So it would, it would seem to, the, to outsiders like there was always exactly 10,000. When one would die, they would be immediately replaced. It would kind of felt like they were immortal because there would always be 10,000 of them. Compare that to the fiery hand of R'hllor, of the Temple of Atlantis, there's 1,000 of them, and whenever one of them dies, they replace them. It's the same concept, and they're called, you know, they're not called the Immortals, but it's the similar idea, and it's 10,000 instead of 1,000. For once, the real-world version is larger than George's version. <laughs> it's like, it's the other <laughs> way around. You'd think the real world would be 1,000, and George would be like, ah, 10,000, yeah, let's go with that. But nope. There's a million of them. Yeah, there's a million of them. <laughs> so, so that's pretty cool. Super chat from TKOK Podcast Network. That's our good friend Tommy Pappas saying shout out to the Cathars. What what are you what what's your deal with the Cathars, Tommy? Why are you such a fan of the Cathars? <laughs> he did his thesis on the Cathars. No for kidding. His history degree, he said. What? Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, huh? damn, I should have talked to him about some of this. I know, I got right? some notes from him. Yeah. Well, anyway, so here's Catharism. This is this is gonna be even briefer than the bit on Zoroastrianism, but it's explicitly something George has said is an influence on Rolorism. He specifically said Catharism. Zoroastrianism are the big influences here. It's like the dualistic version of Christianity. Imagine that instead of Satan, there is a Satan, but, it, but there's two gods, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The Old Testament God created the material world and he's a jerk. The New Testament God created the spiritual world and he's great. The material world is thus evil and everyone's goal is to regain angelic status. 
by rejecting the material world, by rejecting corruption. They don't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection, notably, which was a problem for other Christians, especially the, the, the Pope and Catholic Church. But they did believe in reincarnation. So not only did they not accept the resurrection, they didn't accept the Trinity. Reproduction is evil under there. <laughs> this is a flaw in the religion as far as gaining power in the world. <laughs> you, hard to spread a religion when you believe that reproduction is evil because it continues the cycle of earthly reincarnation. I mean, your goal is to be reincarnated as a spirit and to rejoin the spirit world, then you're just perpetuating the cycle of earthly existence by reproducing. They also thought violence was bad, so that's cool. I can get behind that. The spirits are genderless, and so they had some equality there. However, they thought you had to be a man to, to fully transcend. So your final form had to be male. But then they moved forward, and it got worse. Like, political corruption started to happen. They just started to write women out of things. They started, you know what? Let's give, take even more power away from women. Well, it's a recurring feature of world history. It really stinks. This didn't help that religion survive either. You know, taking some of their, taking half of their people and reducing their level of power. That's not very smart. So they thought the cross was a symbol of torture. I can, I can kind of agree with that. <laughs> Catholic Church was so against them that they formed the Inquisition. Yes, the Inquisition, nobody suspected it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rough to joke about the Inquisition, I guess, but yeah, Monty Python did such a good job of it. That <laughs> no one expects it. Nobody expects it, that's right. So the, yeah, so the Inquisition was formed in response to the, to the Cathars. And some Cathars, this is, this is wild, some Cathars believed that Eve's daughters slept with Satan's demons to create giants. Where did that come from? That was me. That was you. That was me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know it doesn't make sense. All these other religious ideas do make sense, but this one doesn't, <laughs> but it's true. It was me. <laughs> also, they were pescatarian. They didn't eat cheese, eggs, milk, or meat either. And nothing that's a product of reproduction. So milk is a reproductive thing. You know, eggs are reproductive. They wouldn't eat any of that. Cheese obviously comes from milk, so... They thought animals carried reincarnated human souls, so they wouldn't, you don't want to eat an animal that's carrying a human reincarnated soul. And you might say, but wait, fish reproduce sexually, do they not? Like, why do, why do fish get a carve out when they also reproduce sexually? Yes, indeed, fish do reproduce sexually. So you're not wrong if that's what your thought was. But folks in the 1200s didn't know that. So do apples. Yeah. So do <laughs> fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That is technically sexual. I understand that they didn't understand that. But. Yeah. So yeah, they believed in something called spontaneous generation. They thought that, you know, fleas could just be born in straw. And now, the Cathars weren't alone in this. Don't get me wrong. Like, everyone yeah, thought yeah. this. <laughs> You're not every, well, not everyone, but it was, it was common, commonly held belief. There's also one other one here, our third real world religion, which is Manichaeism, which... He doesn't, George doesn't mention Manichaeism, but it's huge in the Accursed Kings. And the Accursed Kings is a huge influence on George. And anyway, here's a, here's a quote. There's a character called Nogaret, Guillaume de Nogaret in the Accursed Kings, and he's a ca son of Cathars. When he's dying of poison, he envisions all these ghosts of tortured Cathars. And they honor things like suicide because of their beliefs. And, you know, it's very, all these things that are in opposition. Like, I'm sure someone like Tommy could have filled out a lot more of this. But here's another quote that really expresses a similar worldview of R'hllor and the Great Other that you'll find familiar. There is not one God. There are two. The God of light and the God of darkness. The Prince of good and the Prince of evil. Before the creation of the world, the inhabitants of darkness rebelled against the inhabitants of light and the vassals of evil in order to exist 
for evil is death and annihilation, devoured part of the principles of good. And then, since the two forces of good and evil were in them, they were able to create the world and engender mankind in whom the two principles are not only mingled, but in perpetual conflict, though evil is predominant because it is the natural element of their origin. Hmm. Yeah, Druon himself wasn't a big fan of the Cathar, so when he writes about it in his book, he kind of throws some shade at them. And so his characters that are Cathars maybe aren't cast in the best light. <laughs> anyway, Manichaeism is pretty fascinating. There's a guy named Mani who, who got it all started, and I don't want to delve into that because we spent enough time on these things. But you'll note, as I said at the beginning of this section, not much to do with fire in any of those, right? There wasn't like Zoroaster, the Cathars, nothing at all to do with fire, really. However, they all have to do with lights. And in ancient times, light and fire are more closely related than they are now. We, in the real world of current times, have lots of light sources that have nothing to do with fire, like electricity and other things like that. Ancient folk had none of that. All light came from fire, especially if you count the sun being fire, except for, you know, I guess there's a few exceptions, like bioluminescence, but whatever. They didn't have much access to that in ancient times either. So pretty much it's all fire, <laughs> like 99%. So that helps explain this gap between fire gods and, and light and is making that association. I think that's a really important piece of info to make that connection. Still. If we're talking about the real world and fire gods, there's a lot. Ra is a sun god, but that's a god of light and, you know, fire. Vulcan, the Roman god of the equivalent of, of Hephaestus. Prometheus stole fire to give to the people. That's, he's a god of fire, even though he's not like a fire god. <laughs> he's associated with the gift of fire, which is crucial. There's a Hindu god named Agni. There's a dozen fire gods in Filipino mythology. And of course, they're associated with related topics like volcanoes, forges, hearths. And of course, the sun. And that's where R'hllor lands in the grand scheme of things. All light is the gift of R'hllor. And so are shadows, as we've been talking about on and off, because as Melisandre explains, without light, there cannot be shadow. It's just darkness. There's light gives birth to shadows. It's an interesting point. I kind of like how George plays with that, the semantics of shadows. I think it's very clever. I hadn't, that argument's probably been made elsewhere in fiction or nonfiction, maybe. But I hadn't seen it before Song of Ice and Fire, and I thought it was really cool. Did you remember when you read that the, for the first time, Sean, or share that, that whole bit about shadows being a child of the light? How convincing was that argument to you when you read it? Or had you ever seen that before? Hmm. I've tar- I, I feel like I've seen it somewhere else, but I don't know if it was before or if it was after. Okay. Hmm. Or where it was. But I, I feel like I have seen that concept somewhere. Okay. I don't know about Sean, but... I honestly don't remember taking particular note of it at the time. Okay, <laughs> right on. Obviously, it's it and many things you could ponder on a lot, but I just didn't happen to. I mean, if you phrase it another way, too, Melisandre would say light gives birth to shadows. And in her case, it's particularly literal. Yeah, it is quite literal. And I suppose male red priests can't do that. Or are female red priests more powerful because they can do that? And could they do that in all eras? Like with the magic waning and waxing, was, was, a, was Melisandre able to do that 50 years ago? I'm guessing no, but maybe. I don't, not all of her magic was gone. There still was magic even in the low magic era. It just was less. I have thought a lot about the idea you need to have evil to have good. Yeah. That, that's like a concept. And it's just, you need to have light to have shadow. And it's, I, I don't know. I, I understand where that, those statements come from, but I just don't know quite for sure if I agree or completely believe in them. Like it, it might just depend on how you define good or light or shadow. Is there any light in justice? 
you have to start thinking symbolically for to, to, yeah. metaphor exactly and 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 is it good for gravity to work it's i don't i mean i guess it's i don't know if there's any moral implications for inertia or you know forces of nature to occur and well, so some people I, say justice should I, be blind right too that's another kind of like that's a metaphor but you're right but it's yeah. uh, i mean Blind. It's. I guess it's supposed it's to be a different, blind. It's a different context. Yeah, what it means, it's a different context, but, but still, it's there. You know, anyway. like it's still, It's a thought exercise. And, and by the way, that's it. Is another part of Zoroastrianism because I, I do think that they use they like put the adjective good in front of truth, mm. so that there's implying there is also a bad truth. And so it is okay. truthful that I wrecked my car, but it's not good. You know what I mean? It's, so it's a true thing. It's a real thing that happened, and it's good that you accept it. Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm no Zoroastrian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't interpret these things. It's all new to me. All right, let's take a quick break with some questions from you all, and then we'll get into the history of the Red Priests and some more things like that. What else is in the second half of this episode? We'll be talking about a few of the Red Temples, comparing, say, the Red Temple in Volantis to the one in Bravos, where the laws and culture are very different. Then we'll talk about a little bit of parallels and supernatural elements. And then the outlook for the rest of the series. We've got some good stuff there. Super chat from Tony Sled up in Canada. Mel Saunders, she's a, quote, great enemy in the flames. She seems to be terrified. Do we think this is an entity slash person slash God that all R'hllor followers pose? Yeah, okay, this is, that's a good question. I'm re- glad you asked because I wonder if Mel Saunders isn't seeing the great other or seeing, rather, seeing the winter of the North, seeing this news about the others and just making the assumption that this is the fit for what her religion says. Well, my religion is predicted that there's this great demon of ice that's going to emerge, this great antithesis to our R'hllor. And there, that seems to be it in the North. Look at that. <laughs> and is she seeing what she wants to see? Maybe this is just something that has nothing to do with R'hllorism. It's just an, a power in the world. And she's seeing what she wants to see, fitting it to her religion. So the great enemy isn't necessarily the one defined by her belief system. But I believe it is a legitimate threat. She is seeing a real thing. It's something that she has to perceive through her own senses, the limitations of what she knows and and understands. And she recognizes it as terrifying, which if she's not terrified by... I mean, R'hllor is terrifying, I think. So this, she's not terrified by R'hllor. She's terrified by this. I think it's hard for me to imagine that she's wrong. Maybe she's wrong about certain details, especially given that there's more evidence, like the others are right there. She's in the right place for that. I think that it's what they envision as their enemy. I don't know that it's what their religion identified 10,000 years ago as the correct thing to be worried about 10,000 years later. But it certainly seems to be falling into place pretty much as they said, you know, in a lot of ways. You wouldn't try to attempt to argue that Melisandre's wrong at this point. <laughs> I mean, about Stannis, yes, but about the great enemy, no. All these prophecies and visions can all be tricky. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's possible the great enemy she sees is Euron, mm. because Euron is going to disrupt Azor High, defeating mm. the others. And it, she's not even seeing the others because that's handled. She's seeing Euron because he's going to stop what should be handled. You know, I'm just saying. He's the one that's the danger. There's ways you could look at this differently. It's not the gods. It's this person calling, you know, unleashing these energies on the world or whatever. Yeah, that that, I totally could see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd think maybe there would be a more something distinct about this image, but nothing is. I mean, there's nothing distinct about it. It's just this great. I mean, there's no description whatsoever. It's not a vague outline. There's no Certainly no eye patch, <laughs> but <laughs> there's no blue lips. That would give it away, though. That would be just too obvious. Imagine if you were looking into flames 
and you're you know looking for the image of a a knight or a zombie or a castle or whatever, but what was being presented to you was a kraken. Mm. Could you make that out in the flames? Would you realize what you were seeing? Maybe not. Maybe could not. could you even know? Does that make sense? Am I just like flickers <laughs> of light? You know, like. Those other says it takes years and years and years to re- learn to read those flames. So I don't even know what like what that in what that entails, what they're doing, like how their eyes and what they're focusing, what they're thinking. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, yeah. wouldn't begin to know what's going on in her head or eyeballs when she's doing that. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hard to say. So you asked about the idea of, I guess, light creating shadow and that relationship. You know, yeah. There's a couple TV tropes pages that are relevant here. Everyone knows I love TV tropes. They've got one for the sacred darkness, which talks about all you know different examples of sacred darknesses in in media and TV. Where they do reference Song of Ice and Fire, but they bring up things like a book where Nick, you know, is associated with shadows at night, but also says others worship her as dawn saying that, you know, those are, are mm. conflated together, in other okay. words. And where it talks about how God is all about light and Christianity, but also keeps people in the shadow of his wing, is frequently oh. referenced. Shadow is considered a good thing, a positive thing. Certainly is when the sun's too hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. When he provides a cloud to shade people from the sun each day. Anyway, so yeah. shade and shadow are positive, you know, yeah. respites from it's the nice light. nice to have nighttime when the day's been really hot. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And so anyways, there's a lot of different examples of that kind of relationship. There's also a TV show's page for light is not good <laughs> that goes into, you know, that, that same idea, like, is lore really uh, good? Especially when we talk about the idea of an eternal summer and stuff like that. We're like, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, if um, you're just going to replace eternal winter with eternal summer, like, it's yeah, not better. You know. <laughs> maybe it's slightly better. You die, a li- you last a little longer, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not good, though. It's still an unsustainable end state. We're going to come back to some a, a variation on this question a little later in the episode, but we'll we'll get there. Sarah Aikenhead from from two weeks ago, responding to the clan milk snakes, <laughs> she says that milk snake is a non venomous snake related to king snakes, and it goes into barns to eat mice. It got the name because farmers thought they were drinking milk from cows. <laughs> she sent a picture too, which I didn't include, but they look pretty ordinary. They don't they don't look like. They don't look like milk snakes. They look like, she says, they look like king snakes. Yeah. So they look just like banded, you know, they're not all white or anything. So there you go. So that could be it. All right. Feral 75, also from last time. Could nettles be related to Coralise Valarian? It's possible. I mean, we just don't know. We don't know much about nettles' parentage other than there's someone with dark skin in her ancestry because she has dark skin. That had to come from somewhere. But there's a whole nother parent. There's grandparents. I... I would doubt it though, because I think the message behind nettles is that there are, you don't have to be, have dragon blood to tame a dragon, given that she did it through trust and I'll bring you meat every day until you get used to me. So I think the story is better if she doesn't have Valyrian blood. If she does, that's fine too, though. I mean, yeah. I'd say I personally do think she has Valyrian blood. I okay. don't I don't have any doubt in my mind personally that I think she has Valyrian blood, whether it's a lot. I think I, I yeah I, I think she has some is my point. I think a lot of people on Dragonstone have some though. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's hard to point, find like she, no Valyrian yeah, blood like, on Dragonstone. She still mm. used her her skills and her wiles to tame a dragon. It wasn't the Valyrian blood that made the difference. But I don't know that she would have had any success if she hadn't had even like a drop. Like I yeah. kind of think you need to have a drop. That's yeah, it's entirely possible. That sounds like 
pretty Valerian elitism. Yeah, I mean, it also sounds kind of weird to be like, oh, this like black girl can't be Valerian to me as well. To be honest, like just be like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to be I, I careful with. Let's just not say there's no way nettles could be or should be because like a lot of people like the idea of nettles being Valerian or of her yeah. having Targaryen blood. Anyways. Questions from Morley. What do you see as Melisandre's role moving forward in the last two books? Do you see her taking an active role in trying to defeat the others like she tried to in season eight? Do you see her character dying at the end of the book series similar to how she died in season eight of Game of Thrones? I think the easiest question is, I think, yes. Basically, it is very similar. And yes, I do think she'll die. Maybe not the same way, but I don't think she is part of the dream of spring. I think her purpose is to die fighting the others. That is her devout reason for existence, what she's prepared for. And I think she'll leave it all on the battlefield, so to speak. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she'll survive, but I think she will not die. I don't think she'll die the way she died in season eight. I don't think it'll be like this Arya stuff and closing of the eyes and all that. But she's not going to hold back. I think she's going to pour her energy, everything she's got into winning. And she means it. It's hard, hard for me to see someone like that living through it all. Also, just from a storytelling perspective, it seems like she's kind of destined for that. What do you think, Sean? you think she's a chance she'll live? Or, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so, but I don't, I don't know how to say this. I, I don't know if it's important. I, I, I feel like the, I, the more I think and, and contemplate this whole world and storyline, I think it's bigger than I said earlier. It's bigger than the lifespans of these characters. Yeah, I yeah. think that the impact she has is significant beyond whether she lives or dies or when or how she lives or dies. I mean, obviously it's interesting to think about. Obviously characters that like we're feel more connected to Arya or John or something like we want them to make it, you know, but I, I feel like this, the scope of this story is so much bigger that especially when we kind of know she's like really old in the first place. If early on, if someone had been asking, do you think Amon's going to live? Mm-hmm. Like, well, I mean, he's maybe, but he's going to die not. anyway. Yeah. He's just really old, you know? <laughs> it's not like I'm rooting for him to make it to the end. He, it just makes sense that he's going to die because he's old, whether he's probably not going to go swinging an axe into battle and die like that. But, <laughs> yeah, that would uh, be cool. <laughs> she says, do you think, see the fiery hand taking on a role to help defeat the others? Yes, I absolutely do. I think any of the, the warrior class of R'hllor, which that's what they are, that is... One of their chief reasons for existing, obviously their day-to-day role is to protect the other worshipers of the Lord, to keep the, the church's interests in line, to make sure no one does violence against other other Valorists. But this is the ultimate evil. If Satan came to earth during the crusades, would the crusaders have fought him? I would hope so. You know, this is the guy that like, this is the guy that you're against, right? Yeah, so I, th- I do think so. And I think this is, this does touch back to season eight, or actually, I guess it was season seven, when Melisandre like left and was like, I'm going to Essos. And then she just came back. And had done some things, but she didn't bring anyone with her. And we thought maybe she's going to bring some R'hllor worshippers. We thought maybe that was going to be a thing because it was it's way set up in the books. They just didn't want to bring in any more, a whole nother army of people. I guess they didn't want to deal with that. But I do think that will happen in, in the books. And the Fiery Hand will be like the, the most prepared for that. They'll be the rank and file R'hllorists who are maybe zealous and wanting to do their part. And then the guys who are actually trained to be warriors who are probably going to be, you know, the front line Maybe fighting alongside even guys like the Unsullied. The Firehand, that's that 1,000, yeah. that group that stays 1,000 all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder how they'll replenish their numbers as they yeah. cross the ocean and engage battle in a new land. I don't know. Yeah, they may have to be bringing, well, if there's like tens of thousands of regular lore, maybe maybe they'll recruit from that that group. Which 
I, I had thought about that in the first place. There's probably not just a thousand of them that like live in a barracks and one dies. What do we do now? Yeah. There's probably a system probably for tr- moving people. Yeah, in. they're probably waiting in the wings. Like next up, you're like, you're yeah. next, dude. You're number, you're 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 number one thousand and one. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, yeah. But that does also imply that they might bring over. 5,000 soldiers, not just 1,000. Yeah, because that's just their fiery hand. The, the fiery hand, to be clear, is the, the 1,000 of the Temple of Atlantis. That's not just like some order that exists through all the churches. That's just the Red Temple of Atlantis. So the Red Temple at least could have 1,000 also. They didn't have like support staff, right? Too. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. got to have squires and red little red squires and <laughs> little all these so little dudes. Take care of the horses and the food and the armor yeah. and the blacksmiths and the. Yeah. Even more cons- confusing to me is the temple prostitutes. There's temple sex workers. They're slaves like all the rest. I th- I imagine George considered having Tyrion sleep with one of them as a plot point to bring some information out because that would have been like that would have fit with his character, right? And uh, but he didn't. So we haven't even, as far as I know, we haven't even seen one of these temple sex workers yet. So what is I mean, what's their deal? I mean, we've seen plenty of that in the real world and other religions where sex and religion are combined into a thing. Like in the Summer Isles, that's a thing as well. But this just isn't very explored at this point in the story. So I don't know what they're... Like maybe that's part of just for other worshipers? Or are they part of the church's money-making operation? Because we don't know where the church gets its money either. Like they don't have these big... Uh, like the hierarchs, like we don't know how their temple leadership even works. Venero's the head priest of the temple of, of Atlantis. But what, how does he... What's his standing with the... Red Temple and Lease and the one in Ashai. And we don't know how they work together, if at all. And is there, there's no like Red Priest Pope, you know, the Relope. I don't know what you'd call him mm-hmm. or her. <laughs> I, I felt a little gross when I started contemplating those Red Priest sex workers. Like, are they there to serve the other Red Priests? Like, I don't know. How is this like, recruiting? Do they even though? want it's to? It's a dark thing. Like, they're dark. Are like they there to even... just generate income for the yeah. church? Like, a, 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 how voluntary is this? slave. You know, remember I said some are more equal than others? I don't know. Pretty much everyone is given as a child. Like, from what we understand is most of them are brought in as kids. So, which is true for a lot of organizations all over. That it gets darker when you think of it like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, it really like does. If the twenty-five-year-old woman decides she wants to commit her life to Relor, Okay. Yeah. If the twelve-year-old girl is thrust into it, I don't well, know. My man, question, I don't like the idea of that. My question there is that with the power of glamour in terms of the sex work going yeah. on, sure. could you be a ninety-year-old woman still working? You yeah, know, looking like you're looking 20, like you're yeah. twenty. Yeah. Like, <laughs> could you be doing that and? I, I don't know. Well, if that's the case, that those temple brothels could probably make a lot of money. You know, you don't. <laughs> like need... you never know whatever retires, and they just <laughs> you don't have to train oh. new people. Jeez, oh. uh, yeah, that is wild to think about. Jeez, uh, but it also might make it so that it's somewhat of a appealing position for some people if it means that yeah. you get like graduate. You know, you get yeah. you get to look good for a long time and get. Yeah, it might make it more of a hot. It might be something someone someone aspires to. Yeah, and if, or it might not be the because they allow you use of the magic. That, yeah, you know, like you wouldn't learn those glamours otherwise. You wouldn't be able to learn the magic otherwise. And because I feel like there is a there is a hierarchy. Like there is something that like a slave could aspire to be more like a Melisandre oh, yeah. and a free agent versus someone could be you know just a fiery hand. Yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy. We just don't know what it is very well. It isn't hasn't been explained to us. 
And yeah, so it is does leave a lot of room to wonder. And yeah, like for example, someone like Makoro, does what what use does he have for sex? He's probably he might be like two hundred years old. Does he even care? Does he can he even yeah. function? Does he want to? Melisandre can because she's birth and shadow babies, but that's you know a different set of equipment. There. Yeah, it's still whether not matter, not a matter of whether she wants to. Like, we don't really get an idea of whether she's taking pleasure from yeah. that. It's just like a means to an end. She does take pleasure in feeling the fire inside her, which has mm-hmm. nothing to do with sex, but it's just, yeah. she thinks of it as ecstasy. Yeah, she, has, she feels transfor- pleasure. Transformative, which is where I'm going with this. Is, is there a magical element to any of these others? Do the temple sex workers and temple warriors, do they have any sort of fire magic applied to them as part of their ascension to this order or part of their, I don't know, do they, yeah. There's a lot of possibilities here. A lot of unsettled world building that is very cool to think about. If anyone's running role-playing campaigns, <laughs> you've got a lot to work with here, but you'd have to make some decisions because it's not all definitive. Yeah, I guess, yeah, Richard Seymour says in the chat, right? Yeah, he's like, do red priests slash priestesses have the power of glamour or is that a shadow binder thing? Which I think that really gets the crux of it is that we don't know what part, where Melisandre gets her powers from. Completely. She says it's a gift from the Lord of Light. The yeah. glamour, because it's bending of light. But like, it's unclear too whether that, I mean, but, like shadow binding can be part of a gift from the Lord of Light. That's just, you know, yep. a, a red priest can be a shadow binder or not. Yeah, and because Ashai is apparently where the religion, I, where the prophecy of Azor Ahai emerged, which isn't necessarily where Relorism emerged, but yeah, do, we, probably, do we think there are shadow binders that aren't, that aren't? Yeah, uh, I believe yeah. there are shadow binders that aren't red priests. And there are red priests that aren't shadow binders. Yeah. I think so, yeah. But I do think there's a lot of overlap because there's a temple in Ashai and Ashai is by the shadow and the legend slash myth of Azor Ahai comes from Ashai and they believe uh-huh. in that. So yeah, there's got to be a ton of overlap. In our Ashai episode, we guessed this as a random headcanon. You're not a real red priest unless you've made a pilgrimage to Ashai. <laughs> you know, it's like in Islam, you make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You know, you got to <laughs> go to Ashai to see where it all began, you know? But I'm just making that up. I don't know that that's a thing. It would be cool if it was, though. It makes some kind of sense. Mora also asked, do we think, Mac- what, do, what did Makoro mean when he told Tyrion's dragons old and young, true and false, bright and dark, and you a small man with a big shadow snarling in the midst of it all? Was he talking about the eventual confrontation between Danny and Fagon? I think that and more. That primarily, but also potentially John and maybe a few others here and there. And maybe the, maybe Euron, if, if the dragons themselves if he takes one of them and the actual dragons fight each other, or if there's an ice dragon or an undead dragon, yeah. But that's it, basically, Mara. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think Makoro means Tyrion is in the midst of it all. He's already been in the midst of the Aegon Young Griff stuff. He's heading towards Tyrion with Makoro. Makoro's going to tell all this stuff to Danny and be like, I'm going to win you over and tell you that you're Azor High and show you my real powers. And yeah, who knows how that's going to go. Am I remembering correct that Tyrion took that as him just building him up. He's just manipulating him. A little bit, yeah. Telling him how big you are. Yes, you standing tall in the midst of it all. Like, oh, me? (laughs) Tyrion, like, tries to downplay. He's like, oh, maybe you were mixing me up with Penny. You know, like, yeah. Yeah, I know. Tyrion, this is a pretty standard, like, psychic trick. Is to, a fortune teller's trick is to, like, play me up. Yeah, play out my importance. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. (laughs) But... He might be telling the truth. <laughs> well, we kind of do think Tyrion's going to be important. Maybe, uh, maybe not quite as important as as Makoro says. Okay, let's let's go back in history. We don't have a lot of history on Relor. It's very much in shadow. Which hey, that's how they would want it. Best we can tell, like I just said, was it emerged in Ashai. But even that's uncertain because what we do know is, like I said, the Azor High Lightbringer prophecy came from Ashai. 
which doesn't mean Relorism did, but the two are connected. So it's our best guess that that's where it like took root first. But it could predate Relor worship or the other way around. Like the Azor High prophecy could come, could have come first. Relorism could have been founded around it or it could have been added on to an existing thing. Some sort of meeting of the religions in some ancient past. Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking about like Christianity, for example, we can we could consider that before Azor Ahai, Relor was like Judaism, and then it became very much a Christianity. Yeah, uh, yeah. with the New Testament and all that, it's kind of how I think of it. That I I feel like maybe it did exist before their Messiah, and there had to be fire God. That's the other thing is yeah. right, like who. It's one of the most basic elemental things. So it's kind of hard to imagine there wasn't, maybe they didn't call it Relorism, yeah, yeah. but there was fire worship probably they before. They called it Red Lordism. Was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Given that Ashai is, quote, by the shadow and the Shadowlands are the name of that region. Again, that's another connection, right? It's the God of flame and shadow. <laughs> He's, that's his thing. Like that connection is right there. Ashai by the shadow, God of light and shadow. So in terms of human nature, the pattern of deifying the elements, if you lived by the shadow, you would, that would be incorporated into your conception of the world, right? And, and all that. So if shadow was a part of your environment, you'd have a god of shadows or a god of something and shadows like this. Yeah, fits pretty well. But yeah, I, I hope we get more on the religion, on the history of this religion. Maybe there will be at least one more Melisandre chapter and, and probably more than one, but at least one more. And, and that, that's an opportunity for more religion. I mean, remember, George originally was going to have Danny go to Ashai. So there was, presumably that's for some lore, for some learning about her own past, maybe her own connection to the Azorahai myth. Yeah, and then he decided to not have her go to Ashai and wrote Melisandre as a POV because probably, <laughs> like you say, he was like, I need to get this lore here somewhere. Where can I do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is it's something I, I remember wondering if I would find like the first priest of lore or if lore had a, Pope type figure or anything like that, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. You know what, Sean? You should never give a worshiper the Lord of Light an ultimatum. Because I'll just say, Relore what? (laughs) 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 That wasn't funny. (laughs) I just got, or what? Relore what? I just got, or what? Yeah. Or what? I was just like, what's the pun there? I I just couldn't quite grasp the pun. (laughs) Or what? That's why it wasn't a good joke. (laughs) (laughs) But making fun of myself afterwards. I always have that to fall back on. See, if the joke flops, you can always just make fun of yourself. That's that's the secret to to telling dad jokes. Just be willing to make fun of yourself (laughs) and you're good. (laughs) May not be represented else everywhere, but the Red God seems to be more, perhaps more widespread than any religion in the world. I'm not sure. I, I definitely can't name one that's more prominent. Like the seven doesn't exist in Essos at all or does very little. The old gods don't either. And what else is there? Like the gods of Lys, <laughs> the god, you know, the god, the Jogos Nai, the moon singers, like those aren't huge worldwide religions. They're just pretty big in their own regions. Noth, I don't know that they're in Noth at all. I don't know that they're in the Summer Isles at all, but they might be. You know, the Summer Isles, there's a good chance there's some temples there because there's such a big sailing culture. And we know that there's a lot of Relore worship spots in ports. Yt though? Yeah, decent chance. I mean, with Ashai and Valyria, like sandwiching Yt, it seems like they didn't just skip over. Just like we presume there's got to be some dragons in Yt and all that. And didn't skip the region entirely. There's probably some Relore worshipers there too. Or maybe there's a different fire god there. 
Karth, same deal. Karth has been around a long time. They probably have a long relationship with Relore as well. Here's where we get to play play around a little, imagine some stuff. Real quick. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it now. Karth definitely has Relore. George just didn't talk about it because it was via Danny and he's trying to keep it removed. Keep that off the page. Yeah, good. Very good point. You're right. That does line up really well with what I was saying before. Well point, Sean. So Mm -hmm. we wonder what some of the other regional cultures thought of R'hllor back in the day. Like, what did the Roinar think? They probably weren't big fans being that they were a water river culture. That was their source of magic. Not so, and then the Valerians come along with all their fire and they end up being enemies of them. Yeah, it doesn't... Thematically, that seems in pretty straight opposition. But the Roina were also, at least er, before their conflict with Valyria, they were very open and welcoming to other peoples and religions. So maybe they were open to that. On the other hand, R'hllor isn't very open to other people. <laughs> so they may have been like, we let you in and you're going to behave like this? Get the heck out of here. You're trying to say no gods except yours? Well, no, 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 no. That doesn't work in this environment. But pure speculation there. It's, still, it's certainly the, it had to come up, though. The Roinar people dealt with Reloris, no doubt, one way or another. The Andals, again, I'll take Nina's one on this. She says, I could see the Andals strongly rejecting Relorism, not just as a different religion, but one which promotes such a strong duality in its theology. The faith of the seven really has no duality about it, certainly not from our limited knowledge of its teachings. This religion acknowledges that sin exists and teaches that hell exists for the sinful, but there is no Satan or devil figure to war against. The seven who are one, certainly outside of local tradition, like we see with the briefly named Lord of the Seven Hells, there is also no eschatology that we know of with the faith of the seven if the faithful believe in a specific end of the world scenario. There's nothing like an apocalypse or like a Jesus returning to earth kind of thing. The seven doesn't have that kind of thing that we know of. And we do know a lot more about the seven than Relore. So it's, there's less wiggle room for something this big to just be missing from our knowledge. So I, I would say that's, it would be a little cheap to introduce an apocalyptic figure from the seven like that at this point, which that's never come up. George could probably do it, could make it work because he's so skilled. But, I, but my imagining of it was, it's too late for that. Sam could discover some hidden book. <laughs> yeah, maybe they used library. to that. <laughs> that could work. Yeah, it used to be a thing. We know the Andals are slash were against slavery. And a number of Valyrian ideals are very much in opposition to each other. Like Andal ideals and Valyrian ideals, a lot of them are the polar opposites. And we got to think that's a lot of that is cultural response to a, a powerful, oppressive nation that was constantly nipping at their borders and enslaving their people. And as we've said, many Valyrian ideals overlap with Reloris ideals. We introduced this concept earlier in the episode. Let's get a little deeper with it. The Relore worshippers were unhappy with the religious freedom given in the freehold. And again, let's remind ourselves of this poor fit that Relore is for the nobility in terms of them personally adopting it because of the whole slavery thing, the reduction of power, the reduction of corruption and things like that. Let's, let's go with Nina's take on this one again. She wonders what the extent the Roinar and others conflated R'hllor worship with the Valyrians in the same thing. Like, they probably weren't big on fire and magic that's opposed to the water magic. But what did they think of these two things? We wonder about the Valyrian connection to R'hllor, and we wonder what that perspective looks like on the outside to other nations. How did they perceive the connection between R'hllor and Valyrian gods and dragons and concepts like fire-made flesh and 14 active volcanoes, which clearly implies a lot of elemental strength and power. And if you believe in nature worship, which if you're worshiping water, you probably think volcanoes have some real 
place in the pantheon of elemental power. So it's a fascinating bit of imaginative energy that we can expend on this and think about what, what it could have been like. Without, Of course, we, we don't have answers, but it is the kind of imagination that I really enjoy about the setting because the detail supports. It gives us just enough to think about it while leaving it open for a number of possibilities while also giving us a little hope that it'll be explored further in the future. The region that we would call the Roinar, the region where that people or culture was, yeah. how far was it from the, the volcanoes of Not far. Not Valeria. far at all. It was, it was like, if you, if you go west from Valyria, the first city you get to is Volantis. Volantis is on the Roin. Yeah, it's... it's like as far as from King's Landing to Sunspear? The va- the va- no, less. The Vale, vale? probably, yeah. Okay. yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not far at all. The Roin is huge. Of course, it's the biggest river in the world. So if you go to the, the full length of the Roin is probably two-thirds the length of Westeros. So yeah, so I guess, one, the Roin would be polluted by that but it's also upriver, so I guess it would be less polluted than yeah, other it's areas. So big, yeah. you know. Like I, I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't travel up. Yeah, the pollution would mostly bit. go out into the sea from from. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it would go out. Yeah, exactly. It would. I go south down to. I wonder how much the Summer Isles got any of that. Like how much? I wonder how how the currents go. Like how yeah. much like ash in the water, and they're like, wow, and the water's dirty. Yeah, you wonder. Well, I think that would enrich the water. It would enrich the yeah, in the long yeah. term. I don't yeah. know for sure, short but term, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. Yeah, you're right about mm-hmm. that. Anyway, I was asking a question. Sorry, because I was wondering if it was far or close enough. How aware they would be of the volcanoes? If volcanoes would be something that the average person it would just be some myth from some faraway mm-hmm. land or something that they knew was real and they could they could probably you know, that see. Might you know. could travel within sight of it probably and see some of them without yeah. getting like all the way there. I, and they at least would have heard stories yeah. from believable sources. Yeah. And, and continuing on this line of thought, like Benero says, Daenerys's dragons quote have come to carry her to glory as the new Azor Ahai reborn. The dragons prove that, she, which is what Aemon says, the dragons prove that she is this, that she is this heroic prophesied figure. And so, what did the Rolorite followers see of the doom? Did they see it as a punishment that the, the Rolor wasn't made the only religion there, and it's the revenge of his, his punishment towards the Valyrians to destroy with fire? Like, how is a Rolor worshiper not going to see that as the punishment of their god? Right? A big apocalypse of fire and <laughs> an explosion. Like, yeah, what, how, how could you not see it that way if you worship Rolor? So they, do they think of the doom as that? This is the revenge of Rolor. This is, they did, they did something wrong. The Valyrians did some, whatever it was they did wrong, putting Rolor over the other gods, probably worshiping other gods, stuff like that. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe not submitting to Rolor, the, the nobility being so powerful and not, submitting themselves as slaves. There's a lot of different reasons they could probably point to. It was this, it was that, it was the other. Plenty of ammunition for blaming the Valyrians for their own behavior as being anti-Relore. Hmm, tisk tisk. Of course, they claim the comet. Obviously, they claim the comet as a sign of Relore, but heck, every, even Theon claimed the comet. I mean, <laughs> everyone thought the comet was about them. But the Relores, of course, like they're the most, one of the most obvious. Yeah, it's a fire. It's fire. Of course, it's our god. <laughs> So there's just not much history of the red priests of R'hllor, of red temples in Westeros at all. There's very little about it in the world of Ice and Fire, which is interesting considering how big of a topic it is and how big it's set to be important going forward. It's pretty much not in Fire and Blood at all, or Duncan Egg at all. 
Very little. And that's really interesting to me too, because George has taken the opportunity with those books to expand on a number of topics, but he didn't choose to expand on this because maybe it's already been expanded on enough or he didn't want to expand it on there or there wasn't a good way to fit it in because there was no R'hllor presence in King's Landing or in Westeros in general in that era. It, it adds to the idea that it's grown over time. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot to see there, a lot to think about. Let's talk about some of the specific red temples and make some make comparisons. Regarding the free cities, this is what is said in the world of ice and fire about the presence of red temples. Each city has its own customs and histories. Each has its own gods too. Although the red priesthood of Relor holds sway in all of them and often wields considerable power. And they're just talking political power in that sense. But they also just wield considerable power elsewhere through, you know, unity, zealotry, just numbers. They have a lot of people. Real magic backs all that up, though, which is when we're wondering why this religion has survived for so long, it's probably a part of it. The fact that it's got some internal pr- protection against corruption, not fully, but some based on the, the level of dedication that's necessary and other factors. But the magic, I think, per- beyond everything else, is the thing that has real power, allows it to sustain itself, I think, more so than perhaps anything else. Other places we've seen temples, I've mentioned before, like Old Town and Pentos and Dorne. We've also seen them in Saloris and Lys and Mir. But let's take the two most extreme examples, Philantis and Bravos. And the reason those are extreme examples is because they're so opposite ends in terms of their own government and politics within their own cities. Think about in the real world how religions typically have a lot of splintering. Mm-hmm. Even when we got the ability to print the Bible and you know spread it around, there's still Lutherans and Methodists and Catholics and, you know, even the Abraham, Abrahamic religions, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity are all rooted in the same thing, but kind of branch off and they, they continue to branch even farther and farther. Do you think there's a million different little subsets of R'hllor that we're just not exposed to, George hasn't gotten into? Or do you think it is? Does it maintain a certain integrity? It seems to me like it should splinter off a lot when it's in different cultures and regions, islands, you know, uh, spread out over a longer time to Christianity also, right? Yeah. But but it, it doesn't seem clear if that is the case. I wonder if something holds it together, especially because we haven't even heard word of like a pope which can like send out mm-hmm. edicts or directives yeah. for what should be studied or followed or believed. Maybe it's all in a flames. Could be, Maybe yeah. They keep a certain consistency because mm. flames all around present the same images or messages. Yeah, I, mean, I think if you're able to communicate with the people, you know, do, practicing island lorism, then yeah, things are not going to get as splintered than they would mm. if you were completely cut off. Versus, you know, so. yeah. Maybe they used re- maybe they used glass candles or still do. Maybe I mean, yeah, glass candles yeah. Are that kind of communication. Which, is, yeah, and that makes sense too because the fire, the flame. Yeah, yeah, it's a similar like the idea of that power concentrated into a obsidian which is frozen fire like you just have a flame reading well this is like a more concentrated version of that if it's a obsidian tool that's uh imbued with magic you're right this is a good segue to what we're going to talk about so volantis and bravo it can't possibly work the same given the laws about slavery like how can you have a thousand slave soldiers in bravo so that just doesn't fly there so there has to be some differences we haven't been exposed to them. There are, yeah, there's got to be exceptions. Yeah, there's, you know, there's just Bravos just gives them an exception. Yeah, Bravos is like, you pay us enough money, we'll let you get away uh. with that. But there are ways to get around that. I mean, well, yeah, there's West, slavery's illegal in Westeros, yet there's thraldom in the Iron Islands. So, like, maybe they just have to, yeah. there might be loopholes, 
So rebranding. Yeah, rebranding. Unintended. <laughs> maybe they're like, oh, if you're an adult, you can you can you can do that. You know, maybe they're not they can't you can't call them slaves. Maybe it's not slavery by the definition of Bravos, you know? Like for example, in Bravos, slaves are almost set free. Remember the example of the slave ship from Lisa took some free folk and couldn't make it back and had to go to Bravos and Arya tells them about it. And next thing you know, all they've all been set free. And because they don't tolerate that. In Volantis, it's illegal to set slaves free. <laughs> so it's like the opposite. You must set them free in Bravos. You can't set them free in Volantis. There's very few exceptions to either of those, but there are exceptions. I mean, maybe in, maybe they just send the most passionate devotees to Bravos, the ones who are willing. Only adults. Don't send the yeah, kids. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, only adults who aren't going to run, who you're like, oh, no, they're true believers. No chance. Yeah, technically they're set free, but they're just believers who are never going to leave. Yeah, there's a lot of like industries that people, that children are involved in from a young age as like apprentices, but it's basically, they're kind of stuck. Like they can leave, but it's the only job they know how to do. Gendry. What's Gendry going to do besides be a blacksmith? Right? Like maybe he could be the Lord of Storm's End, but <laughs> other than that, like... Other than the top job. Maybe that's, than... not, the maybe that's not the best. Yeah, that may not have been the What's best. What's Hot Pie going to do if he can't Wait. Okay, that's a good example. Hot pie won't be the king of or lord of anything except the bread and the tasty pies, which is a good place for him. I would like a sampling, actually. It sounds pretty good right now. <laughs> that said, even Hot Pie doesn't feel like he's a slave. He doesn't feel right. like he's... He wants to do it. He enjoys doing yeah. it. Probably getting paid to do it on and on. Well, I guess know? that's... My so, question here is, just to cut you off, Sean, is if Hot Pie is made a slave of Rulor, He's kidnapped and made a slave, but they put him to work in the kitchens and his job is doing what he's passionate about. Then, they se- then they're like, well, he's happy enough. So they send him to Bravos. Maybe he stays in the kitchens at, at, at their, you know. It's the semantics of having a choice when, that you wouldn't make. Would you, you want to have choice, but if it's a choice you wouldn't make, you miss it a little less than, you yeah. still want the choice. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, you're right. Like that is an example. Like, like someone... he might still leave when they send him to Bravos because he's well. I would like to work for myself as a chef. You know, like he might yeah. still leave even if he, he likes his job it. of baking. You he's know like, what I mean? If I go somewhere else, maybe won't, I won't be able to bake. You know, and he's like, I'd, I'd rather not risk that. And they treat me well, even though I'm a slave and I can't leave. But other than that, I'm treated well. Yeah, every night they give, they send me one of the temple sex workers. And <laughs> I get to eat as much of my own bread as I want. Sucks that I can't leave, but honestly, I don't think I could get better elsewhere. Yeah, it is weird. Like, and that's gets to what Tyrion said. One of the most insidious things about bondage is that how easy it is to get used to it. And you know, yeah. Tyrion's a highborn noble, so to him, it's extremely. Oh no, I would never do that. But he hasn't faced the reality that non sons of Casterly Rock have faced out in the world. No, you might sacrifice a little security for safety if you're not Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, you know, we can't can't uh, can't make that choice for other I, people. We, We've even been touched in the past on the idea that the, the word slavery itself is, can carry a lot of different meanings, yes, you know, yes. like whether it's legal meanings, moral meanings, uh, psychological meanings, on and on. And to, to me, it's not that much of a stretch to see how Bravos could justify it. Uh, yeah. Whether they're like barely justifying it for the sake of some financial gain or if it's easily justifiable because it's a semantic thing and they're not really slaves at all. You yeah. Know, so. Like another example, one I think maybe we have, we, I think we've mentioned them before, is like the Silent Sisters. Like, I don't think you can leave the Silent Sisters. Is that pretty yeah. much like religious slavery? Like you're sent to this I always religious like order? That, you're right. And then, 
you can't leave as far as we know. And you can't even talk about leaving because they literally cut your tongue out or whatever. Or Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, other people will be like, well, is the Knights Watch slavery then? I guess. It kind of is. That's, know, that's kinda pr- is. It's also prison, though. Yeah, you kind of check, you know, yeah. technically have the choice of death. In some scenarios, you forego your liberty. You know, yeah. if you define slavery as the losing your liberty. I mean, I guess a lot of people say prison is slavery and, you know, in that sense as well. If they're forcing you to work for someone else's benefit, yeah. then it does become kind of like that. Yeah, yeah I'm like, like yeah, you're right. I guess some that. prisons aren't slavery because you're not working. You're just in prison. You're literally just in prison. So there is no slave aspect of but it. But if they're forcing you to fight fires for $1 yes. an hour, that's... That's slavery. That's slavery, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, it, you know, <laughs> I guess that could be, you know, I, 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 guess, the, I guess the Night's Watch is. And, and yeah, it kind of is, kind of is, yeah. I would agree. Even though, but, but it's, still, it's weird because you can voluntarily join. Like, no one voluntarily goes right. to prison. But still, I don't know. It's it's a weird, it's it's hard to compare to the rules. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like you're, you're all right. You're that oath people do also. choose to join the Night's Watch. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that. I guess if you take that oath, you can't unjoin them. Yeah. Which is weird. But that, that's true for a lot of things, you know, a lot I mean, of oaths. I mean, technically, the Kingsguard is like that, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. Like, in the U.S., if you join the army, you take an oath. And if you, you can be put in jail. Like if you abandon your post, if you quit, I don't like this anymore. I don't like my sergeant. You just leave. Yeah. You're AWOL. I'm going to arrest you and put you on trial, you know. But that we wouldn't call slavery because no one's forced. On the draft, you might. Under a draft, you might. Yeah. But not yeah. like you joined the army voluntarily. You were maybe, you could say that like you came up in a military culture and you were maybe encouraged to. You weren't forced into it, but. Also, mm-hmm. one way or the other, you're paid when you're in the right. army. That's true, too. So, so they, like, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you're paid in a Night's Watch. I don't know if you're paid to be a priest of Relore. Well, they don't have hey, spending I mean, money, but they get sister. food and, you yeah. know, they get their... And I mean, technically, sometimes yeah. you're paid a little bit, but you have no opportunity to spend it on anything. Yeah. You have no access yeah. to anything. It doesn't matter if you're paid or you're paid so little that it means nothing and you might as well not be being paid as in, like, the case of prison. So... Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I wonder, I I feel like, yeah, I wonder if they get any sort of stipends, you know, yeah. like in our hot pie situation, hot pie the baker mm-hmm. at the Bravo, the Bravosi temple, you know, does he ever get a little pittance to go buy himself a treat? Ever? <laughs> Probably yeah. not, I don't think. And that sucks. So I, but I think maybe he does. Yeah. Say he wasn't given a pittance to go buy himself a treat. However, he was given a four-bedroom house yeah. with three servants to clean. And he has how many could probably sell some amenities of the stuff he could had. you be given <laughs> that would be worth more than he could have gotten if they did pay him? Like, we'll pay yeah. you $10 an hour or give you a new house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the house is more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even pay me. Could you complain about not being paid after that? You know, like <laughs> We're getting into some pretty out there examples there, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our, our hot pie AU world. Where yeah. we went to SOS <laughs> we got, got, hot pie yeah. fanfic here. Yeah. <laughs> the alternate, yeah, the, the alternate adventures of hot pie. All right, let's, let's quote this Volantis example to set up our comparison with Bravos. Here we go. Many of the old blood of Volantis still keep the old gods of Valyria, but their faith is found primarily within the Black Walls. Without, the red god Relor is favored by many, especially among the slaves and freedmen of the city. The Temple of the Lord of Light in Volantis is said to be the greatest in all the world. In Remnants of the Dragonlords, Archmaester Grammarian claims that it is fully three times larger than the Great Sept of Baylor. All who serve within this mighty temple are slaves bought as children and trained to become priests, temple prostitutes, 
or warriors. These wear the flames of their fiery god as tattoos upon their faces. Of the warriors, little enough is said, though they are called the fiery hand, and they never number more or less than 1,000 members. 1,000 members. I wonder if there's ever been like a high priest of lore who ever like has made some sort of joke or pun or anything about getting someone with their fire, like slapping him with the fiery hand, you know? Like, <laughs> how many, how much wordplay has been done about the fiery hand, like punch of it? The Unsullied have 8,000 people, but they don't have 8,000 members. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a different use for your fiery hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tyrion also thinks it's three times larger. That's two different estimates that this temple is three times larger than the Great Sept of Baylor. I'm I'm happy George held held back. Easily <laughs> he could have said ten times larger, yeah. five times larger. <laughs> so again, we wonder where did all this money come from? Where did the money to build this giant giant church come from? Maybe the temple sex workers are really bringing in the cash. Who knows? Maybe some. Politicians give them some money to keep them in line. Maybe the yeah, other they might way around. Get, yeah, you know, in terms of you know sacrifices and donations and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like a pretty. Like, although a lot of it would just go to the flame, but maybe not everything goes to the flames, and they get a lot of gold or something, which gets it's melted po- down. Yeah, it's possible that not all of them. That is, the slavery business hasn't always been the way it's functioned. Like it hasn't always been. You're not always slaves to the temple, especially given that we. Wonder if that's even how it works in Bravos at all for the Bravos Red Temple. That could explain, and that could work in with what you're saying, Sean, about permutations of how it all works. Take Benero, who is like hardcore preaching flame and doom and pushing glyphs into the air with magic, like fiery glyphs that glowing in the air, compared to this over the Red Priest, quote, fatter than Illyrio at Danny's wedding, who was. Probably not so hardcore. He's probably more of the corrupted pay me some money type, you know, like that guy probably isn't a devout, <laughs> you know, he could be, but usually being that big is a sign that you're all about the pleasures of life and not about the <laughs> the worship of <laughs> and, and thinking about prophecies and things like that. You know, a, a couple things. One, over enough time, a structure like that wouldn't necessarily take a bunch of money if it was built up over a long time. There might not have been any one moment where an extravagant amount of money was spent. That's a good point. Also, in the same ways that you, we wonder maybe it wasn't always slave-based. Maybe in the past, it was even more slave-based. Yeah, maybe they had to dial it back. Now, okay, here's where one of the loopholes might be. Who are you actually a slave to? The temple, that's a thing. You're You're a slave to a god. Right, which is different than a slave to another person. You're not owned by a person. You're owned by an organization, which apparently doesn't even have a leader. There is no pope, as we've said, that we know of. So maybe that's how Bravos can tolerate it because you're not enslaved to a person. There's no slave owner. They're like, religious slavery is fine. Yeah. Not, I mean, you know. Maybe that's the loop. If they told the person running the Church of Bravos, the, the Relore Temple of Bravos, you can't have any slaves. I don't have any slaves. Yeah, they're not my slaves. Yeah, well, it's clear. It's like, I don't, I didn't buy them. The temple paid well, what for else? them. Are we done here? Did yeah. I, where's the receipt? Did, I didn't, I don't have the bill of sale. It's this, yeah, it's right and here. That's like well, corporations. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're like, like a, a corporation. I get the rights of people, yeah. but none of the, you know. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of like. The obligations of being a person. Because I'm not a person. I'm a corporate. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Gray area here. Yeah. A red area. <laughs> 
But you also could see how if people who worship R'hllor think of themselves as slaves to R'hllor, yeah. when there is an operation, they might not have to be, you know, priests with whips forcing everyone into to con- the construction effort. They might just choose to do it because yeah. they believe in R'hllor. They might be All like, right, okay, this temple. There might, there might be like the Bravo, Bravos rules might be like, okay, no chains, no whips, no, no bondage, none of these things, then you can get away with it. Because like even, okay, let's say they're like, no, this is a semantic argument that we don't accept. You're the head priest. These are your slaves. Like, oh, I'm a slave too. I was bought as a child. Can a slave yeah. own slaves? I don't I think, think so, I, just to be I, clear. I maybe, think so. yeah, I guess yeah. so. But that's, it gets into another weird semantic version of this. This is if a rabbit hole we Neopet, haven't gone into before. If my Neopet can have a pet pet, then I think a slave <laughs> can have a slave slave. I guess they call it. However you frame it, it, it is different than having a master, right? That you just you, you you call yourself a slave, but you don't actually have a master. Are you really a slave? I mean, in the I, they call themselves slaves, so yeah, I guess so. But I think a thrall is more of a slave than this version because there's no person like telling them what to do. They're they're a slave to a deity that doesn't actually tell them what to do. Now, in the actual day to day, maybe yeah, maybe the temple priests are giving them orders and giving them all these telling them all these things to do and behaving corruptly. We haven't seen all the Red Temples. We've only seen the Volantis one up close. We talk about the Bravos one, but we haven't actually gotten a close look at it. We've got a quote on it coming in a second. But yeah, we know a lot more about this one. And it's tempting to take this version as the way they all work. But we know that can't be the case. It's the biggest one. It's the one with the most slaves in the town. We know Bravos has different laws. So we even though we don't have the answers, we have to imagine that there are some pretty substantial differences. Nina has another point here, right? And that might in, this, this might increase the appeal of the religion to people who are slaves. The fact that even the high priests are slaves too, might be like, hey, there's a little more quality here that might appeal. It might seem like there's less corruption going on because they're all at least somewhat on the same level, at least as far as that title goes. They're all slaves to R'hllor. They may have different social standing, but when in his eyes, they're equal maybe, something like that. It might, Go, it goes a long way towards explaining how this religion has survived, how the, the power of the people has been used in a manner kind of concentrated in a way that it makes it difficult for the nobility to break it up, which is what the nobility usually does to power centers that they don't have control over. <laughs> this one's just too strong for them and too big and, and been around too long. But we know they want to get rid of it. That's also part of the Outlook section coming up later. We'll talk about that in a minute. What do you think about this, Sean? What do you think when they're this hardcore? Do you think that that's more appealing to the rank and file because it shows that the, the people at the top aren't corrupt? Or do you think that that's all just kind of lost in the wash? How, how cynical about this are you? <laughs> I really just think it depends on how the individuals behave. Mm, I right. think that yeah. it could be, like if you have a leader, you know, a priest of Valor who is, I want to say this, genuine, kind, you know, even if they're strict, even if they're a slave, and if they employ slaves, but if they still seem to really believe in this God, and by the way, really have powers that come from this God. You know, I can see the average person being okay with it, or at least is okay with it as the rich kid who's just in charge because of his dad, who's trying to tax my wheat, you know, where this guy just wants people to believe in his God. And, you know, and and everyone that, everyone that does seems to be okay with it. Like they Mm. might've been a slave, but they're not leaving. And if they don't have to use whips and chains to keep them there, I don't know, they might not even be perceived. But I can easily see a priest of R'hllor using whips and chains yeah. and going to the local rich kid who's only in charge because his dad to help get his help recruiting more slaves into his church. And on, you know, I can 
I think it really depends as much about the details of how the individuals behave yeah. than the theoretical structure of the church. But as you said, it does make sense that this theoretical structure is going to do more to endear itself, is going to do a lot to endear itself to the average person. Well, and then the other thing is where the nobility can't harm them or has a difficulty making inroads and in, in tamping down their power is that they're both working within the same slavery system. If, if Relora is buying... Rolores temples are buying people as kids and then training them and raising them to do all these different jobs. Well, they're buying them at the same slave markets that the nobles are buying slaves for their households. And so to break up one breaks up both. And so this is part of it. They're buying, you've got an endless supply of new worshipers if you're indoctrinating them, buying them as babies and then just bringing them, raising them to do that. Like they've known no other existence. Sure, we have adult converts like the Brotherhood Without Banners, but we have to keep in mind that a, a huge percentage of Rolores worshipers come straight from the slave pens. They're raised there, they're born there, and, well, it's the religion that's, that is, gives them the best shot. Yes, you're a slave, but compare it. Here's a great point by Nina. Relorism simultaneously gives the enslaved people of Volantis an immediate comfort in opposition to their slavers and the promise of future redemption. Compare being enslaved by a Valyrian dragon lord sent down into the mines or just bringing them someone food every day or just at their whim versus being enslaved to a temple and serving a god, right? Which is who doesn't give you direct orders. It's a very different form of slavery. One's telling you that when it's all over, you're going to be reborn and have eternal life. The Valyrians aren't promising you crap. They're just like, nah, you got to do what I say or I hurt you. Uh, end of story, <laughs> right? So of course they're going to prefer the former to the latter. Like maybe they don't like either of them, but the former is way better from the common Here's perspective. Here's a couple connected questions. Sure. Is there any sort of celibacy involved with R'hllor? We don't know. Can you still get married and have kids? Don't know. Definitely don't know. You can still have shadow babies, clearly. <laughs> yeah, but like I don't... Don't know. I don't yeah. remember anything of that being noted where they we do know that for law or the, the, the King's Guard, different entities. It is pointed out often when that's the case. Yeah. It has been pointed out here. It doesn't seem to be something like if Melisandre is trying to convert everyone there's opposition, but no one has named that as part of their opposition, yeah, yeah. right? So I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that's not the case. Well, How much to, do to be we... clear, converting someone isn't making them a priest that would potentially be celibate. Being a worshiper Fair, but... or a slave, being a worshiper is different from a slave, is different from a priest, you know, and they can all be the same thing, but... Yes. Thoros certainly not celibate. Like, that yeah. dude was a woman womanizer. Uh, yeah. Melisandre but, have regular children. But yeah, you could be not okay. celibate still and still not. not able to get married. That's so true. I, yeah. but, yeah. but is every member of the church a slave? Do some people who weren't bought as kids maybe consider themselves slaves to R'hllor? Yeah, maybe not. I don't think the BWB consider themselves slaves to R'hllor, for example. Yeah, there you go. They do oh, yeah. worship R'hllor. Yeah, I don't think Thoros doesn't call himself. Yeah. A, he calls himself a humble servant. He doesn't say slave. Yeah. Yeah. So... Even though he's a priest, he, yeah, I feel like he's from Mir, and he was yeah. he was he he specifically yeah. was given to the Red Temple as a, as a boy. yeah. That's he what was, I feel like it makes sense that there would be a lot of people who are like, I can't raise my son. I'm poor. I'm this. I'm that. He was the yeah. He yeah. was the youngest of six. So like, yeah, they're and like, oh, we'll give one to, to the church, which is a normal thing to do in real world. That they would you know donate a child to the church or something like that. That's kind of where I'm going. Is I wonder how do we know how many slaves of Relore ever bought at market. What if a high percent, at least, of the slaves of Lord that are bought are just a family who is already a slave to a temple, be, has yeah. a kid, 
And then the church is like, you know what? We'll take your kid. We're going to yeah. give you 20 gold pieces for your kid and use that to improve your house. And your kid can still live there. Just be part of the church and clean the aisles. It would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's not really, it's barely even slavery. I, I can see how semantically in certain ways they're like, obliged to do what the church says, but they want to do what the church says anyway, kind of like forcing hot pie to bake. Like, right, like it's, it's anyway, a fair exchange, know? basically. Like you're like, you're, yeah. I'm getting a lot and for it, my labor. It's, you know. They're helping the family out, they, even if they're justifying it in their minds, or maybe it's still not right. But I can just, my point is you can see how the system they have might not entail all the terrible evil things that we automatically associate with slavery. It might be handled in a different way, at least in some areas by some leaders, it makes everyone feel better, be more voluntary. Mm. Bravos accepts it, et cetera. Yeah, that could work. Yeah, I would see that. I could see that because you know, like that's, that is, religion has to bend the, the culture that it's fitting in as much as it tries to bend the people that it's trying to adapt to. So there's, there's definitely some of both. When you have slaves, it, it's, it's a lot more of the you listen to me. But when you are in a region that is anti-slavery, you have to do more of the, hey, we're, this is why you should come to us. You have to win them over rather than just buy them as children because they obviously can't buy them as children in Bravos. What if it's like a Schindler's List type thing too? Like the only slaves they buy are the ones that the were about to be sent. We know that slaver is going to send them down into the mines. Oh, we'll buy yeah. them and bring them into our church. Yeah. So like rescuing people. You like know? that's what the Atlanta Aquarium did with whale sharks. Some people, there was like people that protest the whale sharks being held in, in, in this aquarium. But those whale sharks were saved from slaughter. <laughs> the, the, the government of Thailand had the right, through negotiation, like world ecology organizations have gotten them to reduce the number of whale sharks they'll kill. Each year, it's gone down by two. I think we might even be in the point where they no longer kill whale sharks. But there were like the Atlanta Aquarium bought four kills from Thailand. You get, you're allowed to kill 14 whale sharks this year. We'll buy four of those from you and not kill them and just keep them. And their Thailand's done. <laughs> we'll take, give us that money, yeah. So you're right that sometimes you look at something in a vacuum and it looks terrible, but then you realize, then if you look at the full picture, and it's like, well, the, the alternative is worse. Well, yeah. So, but a lot of this, you know, we're speculating, but I imagine some of this will come into play with Danny when she's yeah, trying to yeah. stop slavery. And Relore's going to be this thing. It, I, I think it's going to be dealt with. I bet it gets further explained. And she I can't bet just get all these Relore worshippers to stop worshiping Relore. And why would she want to? Yeah. She's not the kind of person that just, like, I will d- decide who you worship. Like, it's not really her bag. Yeah. <laughs> That's not her attitude. So, yeah, so you're right. She's going to have to reckon what with their Danny, beliefs. Danny demands that Relore release all the slaves. And they're like, okay, you're all released. And I'm like, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, you know, we'll nothing fo- might change. Like, sure. Cause then, and it's, they might be like, yeah, well, we're, we're following you. You're the prophet of our, you're the prophesied hero. So yeah, whatever you say, <laughs> they're going to follow you anyway. You free them, they're still going to follow you nowhere, no matter where you go. You're the, you're the savior. <laughs> well, what, what I'm, I'm supposing, I mean, that's true, but I'm supposing that even if they were freed, they might not change anything. Right. They still might just go doing what yeah. they're like, yeah. It's, doesn't yeah. make, I'm not going to, I'm not going to exercise that choice. You've given me the choice and I'm not going to exercise it. Yeah. In the same yeah. way that Danny freed the unsolely and they just stayed with her anyway. Yeah. So if Relore freed their slaves, they might just stay with them anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Very similar. And I think that is probably not unlikely. I think that they will stick with her and they have, they have as much reason, if not more reason to stick with her than, than the unsullied do. Okay. So here's the quote, much shorter quote than the one about Volantis, the quote about the Red Temple in Bravos. The Lord of Light, Red Relore, has a great temple on Bravos as well, where his worshippers have grown ever more numerous in the past hundred years. We've brought this up a few times. I'm wondering why, uh, one, what can we attribute this growth to? And we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but also we ended up touching on this. Is, is that growth in general or just there in Bravos? Or 
both. Or, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. My interpretation is that Rolor worshippers have grown more numerous in the past hundred years, and that extends to Bravos. That's not them yeah. saying that only in Bravos have they gone grown more numerous. I agree personally. with that. Yeah. I think I agree with that, but it, it, I one way or the other, yeah, I yeah. think it's worth noting this is Yandel's perspective. Yes, true. Yandel, like he might have witnessed the founding of the Red Temple in Old Town. Like maybe it didn't exist, mm. but in the last hundred years it was founded. Like maybe that's part of why it's more numerous to mm. him is that they had, you know, the, yeah. these temples are new. Because we know there's one in Old Town and that's where Maester Yandel, you that's know, studied. So like he would have been exposed to it if it existed there when he studied and it probably did exist or was founded at that time. Yeah. So we just have to assume that there's some sort of semantic arrangement or loophole that allows this to, to work that way. Or maybe just a temple in Bravos has to work differently. They just, it has to be volunteers. Like one of the other things to think about is like in Volantis, they have facial tattoos to indicate they're a slave. Clearly that's not the way it is everywhere. But I mean, Melisandre doesn't have face tattoos. She's not from Volantis. Makoro does. And Benero does. And a lot of these, and all these, pretty much all the other people we see in Volantis do. And even not, even people who aren't, lore worshippers because it's just face tattoos are for all slaves to designate their job. So if we can assume that they fit into the way Volantis works, let's, let's imagine that to fit in in Volantis, they decided, yeah, we're going to go full bore on slavery. And so all our people are slaves. But in Bravos or Mir or Pentos, maybe it fits that government style just like it lines up so well in Volantis. Maybe it, isn't, maybe it doesn't happen to fit in Volantis so well. Maybe it just, they made it fit over time, and it's had a long time to get that way. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a good angle. Maybe it's not so much that Bravos has to find a way to manage the, the Temple of R'hllor, even though they have slaves. Maybe it's that Volantis has to find a way, uh, the, the R'hllor and Volantis has to find a way to fit in, even though they have slavery here. Yeah. I guess we'll call us our guys slaves, yeah. Yeah, because like for all we know, like their default is somewhere in the middle of hardcore slavery and freedom, right? Again, we're a lot of what we know is through this lens of Volantis because Melisandre, we know a lot about it from Melisandre, but she's isolated. She, we, we, don't, we haven't seen her in her natural element. We didn't see her before she came to Essos other than her vague dreams of being sold at an auction, which is slavery auction. You know, that makes sense. She was sold to a Red Temple. So it probably does work that way in Ashai since she's not associated with the Red Temple in Volantis and she was a slave as a child. That's at least one other Red Temple that uses slaves. I would, so would probably, so I kind of leaning towards the, they fit in with whatever city they're in. They kind of have to obey the laws of that city. They find a way to make that work. Maybe it just happens to fit really well at Volantis. Maybe they didn't have to change much. Maybe they did though. Maybe they had to change more than we think. Maybe being branded as a slave of Rulor and Volantis protects you from being branded as a slave to someone or something else. Yeah. Consider, is it slavery to what's happening with the faceless men? Arya, they say she can leave. But it's still indoctrination and they're requiring her to give all of herself up, like her identity. Like she can't even be Arya anymore. And yeah, and like and speaking of the face of men, they're more extreme than a lot of the stuff that happens in Red Temples, right? Like they're not as populous. They're not nearly as widespread. But I mean, the many-faced god, this, this death stuff, it's pretty hardcore. I mean, it's probably more hardcore than R'hllor stuff, which is... Also pretty damn hardcore. But at least the R'hllor stuff has like a, an answer. <laughs> There's a great evil coming and we got to stop it. And they kind of seem right about that. Many-Faced God is, yep, 
We're all going to die. There's many assassination contracts coming, and we got to cash in on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of possibilities. There's a lot of different possible loopholes on how Bravos can work, how these other cities can work. We don't want to get too bogged down on this, but I do want to point out a few other details that we know. Thoros, like we said, was given to the Red Temple of Mir. He was the youngest of six, and he was a big dude. Ario Hota was sold to the bearded priest. That's not Red Temple. That's the bearded priest of Norvos, but it's another religious order. And they have slavery in Norvos. Norvos is very, very rigid, very authoritarian. It definitely suggests that if Thoris was given to the Red Temple, not sold, and his family was poor. So if they could sell him, <laughs> they probably would have, right? And they just gave him. And Aryohota, same thing. His family couldn't afford him. He, he was a big eighth child. And they were like, we can't afford to feed this kid. Yeah, they had eight kids. Thoris was the sixth of sixth, and Ario was eight of eight. And they were both huge boys and ate a lot. So their families were like, we can't afford your mouth. But that tell, that's, that's tell, even though it's this one line, tells us a lot. Thoris wasn't sold. He was given. And Mir has slavery. Although they have less slavery because of Bravos enforcing their will. As we know, Bravos is often is, gets the upper hand on some of the other free cities because they're so powerful. And it's, stop that. Stop slaving so much. Illyrio says that to Tyrion. Like, we have slaves, but only on the down low because Bravos is telling us not to, and they're really nearby, and they're more powerful than us. So anyway, here's a great point from Christina Kay. As we move into our final section, or second to, second to last section, we have Parallels and Supernatural, and then we have a little bit of Outlook here. Indeed, this episode is turning into a big one, as we thought it would. So we're not going to get to the Starks, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> we still haven't gotten to War and Peace yet. I mean, I mean, <laughs> So Christina Kay says, the description of Mel using her magic is very, very similar to the description of Nissa Nissa being murdered. Ooh, check it out. Mel says, quote, the fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy. And then Salador San says, while telling Davos about Azor High, it is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon. Christina says, I've always thought that it was a strain, that it was strange that she consented to the stabbing and furthermore that she seemed to enjoy it somehow. But, that seems to be something that happens with Reloric magic. So I've kind of wondered that since then if maybe the whole story is a description of some kind of red priest ceremony, meaning Nissa Nissa is having, going, undergoing some sort of transformation, maybe kind of like what Melisandre or, and or Makoro and or Bonero went through to become closer through supernatural means to have this longer lifespan. You know, Melisandre's glamoured. We don't know if Benero, Makoro's not glamoured, apparently. He maybe could use one because he's so frightening looking. But <laughs> yeah, we're each, at, yeah, we're at its core the this is fire magic that she experienced, whether, you know, one way or another, that that's how the fire magic feels. Yeah, and, and if you think about other things, like these sort of contrast of, of feeling agony and ecstasy, pain plus pleasure. You think about Danny drinking the, the Undying One's drink and Bran drinking the Werewood Pace. They have these sort oh, the of similar of sort of energy. What's that? The shade of the Evening. Shade of the Evening, yeah. The, the way both of those experiences are both similar to each other, but they have a lot of opposites sour than bitter or sweet than bitter love than hate all these like co contrasting emotions fire and ice the, the biggest of all you think Victorian felt any ecstasy in his hand oh, that's an interesting Ooh. thought hmm. <sighs> man and that's the one moment where it cuts away from his perspective yes, it's that really queer we, we moment where it leaves his perspective in, does he scream in anguish and ecstasy or just anguish just agony we do know the sailors on the outside hear yeah. screaming and laughter and it freaks them out. It's kind of like Danny outside of the tent when Mary Mazdur is in there and there's laughing and singing and a wolf thing and a fire guy involved in fire and all these other weird things happening. And 
It's super creepy. George is so good at the horror elements. <laughs> Think Nissa Nissa was actually killed? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's a really interesting story. Just first of all, he tries to cool the blade in water. Then in a lion, which that symbolism right there is like a lion? A lion's heart? Like which lion are we talking about? Is that Cersei? Is this Jamie? Is this the whole House Lannister? Is it Tyrion? I don't know what the deal with that is. And then a woman, a woman of fire who with this agony and ecstasy, is she willingly doing this? Is she... Uh, a, a reason she would willingly do it is because she is like a red priest, devout and sincerely believes that this is necessary to save the world and is thus sacrificing herself in order to do it. Or the story is not telling us the truth and she was like, don't stab me. I don't want to do this. Like, and you're like, I'm, oh, that kind of tickles. Or, that feels a little good. Ow, <laughs> ow. <laughs> yeah. Or a reason she did it is because it didn't kill her. It yeah. enhanced her. It yeah. maybe uh, whether she it did it for that reason or it turned out to be the case. I'm I'm just wondering if it's a possibility that stabbing like Lady Stoneheart got her throat slit, but she's still alive yeah, and arguably more powerful and maybe not happy, I guess. But uh, I mean, it's, anyway, yeah, it's, just saying. No, possible Nissa Nissa wasn't actually killed. If we have beings of pure ice, why not beings of part fire? I mean, dragons are beings of fire, but like she's transformed by fire in that scene where she's has her chapter. Yeah, she's it's like a reverie. She's feeling the transformation. It's like an ongoing thing where she's slowly becoming more and more one with fire. And you wonder concepts like fire white and fire night and fire this and that is like this is like a I think Christina might be onto something here with this transform it's more of a transformative thing rather than a, just a pure straight sacrifice to give power to a sword. Cuz that always seems a little weird, right? Like a metaphor for sacrificing yourself to imbue a sword with magical energy. That's got to be a metaphor. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> uh, I don't... I mean, it could be, you know, just her soul went into the sword. Like, that just sword seems too... imbued her with fire energy. Oh, fire yeah. Magic. Yeah. The other way yeah, like, That's yeah. what I'm supposing. I mean, Valyrian steel is magical and like, maybe you do... And like, from what we know about it, it does require sacrifice. So that does, at least, it's not totally crazy that Azor Ahai was making some super weapon from an unwilling person or a willing person. Maybe, obviously, a slave wouldn't be willing, but maybe that doesn't matter in terms of the magic. It doesn't matter whether the person is willing or not. just has to be a sacrifice. And then you get your blade. One idea that I know we've said before is that Dawn, which is, other than its coloring, has all the properties of Valyrian steel, its lightness, its sharpness. Maybe that's a willing sacrifice. When it's a willing sacrifice, it comes out mm. all pure and noble. But when it's a forced sacrifice, it's dark and and red and flamed and smoky. and You were willing, so that, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know, we're getting pretty, pretty guessworky when we get out of there. But, but there's definitely stuff there. It's not a big stretch. It's just maybe a little stretch. <laughs> and there's no way George doesn't want us to guess what was going on there with Victarion in his hand yeah. when he doesn't show the one time in a whole series. Right? <laughs> We've got multiple examples of people like becoming one with fire or having already been one with fire in Melisandre's case. Or like we, this, is, this one with Victarion is like the most incredible example. And I think as we've talked about before recently, it may be the fact that Makoro can do that is perhaps more important than the fact that Victorian has that part of him now. More people. Who else will he do that to? <laughs> what else? Will it continue to move up his arm? Will he continue to transform? Ooh, will like, it yeah, creep farther? Yeah, we got to keep, keep in mind. Next time we see him, where is it? Is it all the way up here? Is it still at his elbow? You know? Mm -hmm. Will it fade away? Okay, that too. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
That wouldn't be as fun, but <laughs> it could be. Mm-hmm. It could happen. It's gonna like burn out and crumble to ash. <laughs> yeah, just uh-huh. ash arm. <laughs> Victoria ash. It might it might make Victorian dependent on Morocco. Oh. Hey, do to do it again. It's going away. You yeah, know, recharge me, bro. Around. <laughs> yeah, need a new battery. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to sacrifice someone else. That wouldn't stop Victorian. Like, yeah, go for yeah. it. Yeah, who? <laughs> Name them. You know, <laughs> your pick. So let's do some comparisons. We, we, we've talked about how much this fire element stuff is so important. Let's, let's take a look. This fits in with our overlap of magic theory, our overarching magical energy theory. So compare all these things to ice and, and, and as we do this. The mindless worshipers, the zealots compared to the undead. Resurrection and raising the dead. Fireworks, fire whites, fire warts. <laughs> fire whites versus ice whites. Eternal life. Bonero preaches that all those who follow the Nero will live forever. Endless summer versus endless winter. Human sacrifice on both sides of it. Old gods versus for lore. Nope. These, these are more opposites, like rather than parallels, but just complete opposites. Like no priest versus lots of priests. According to the old gods, there's no boss other. We've never heard of a, the Night King as a TV show invention. We've never, you know, that version of the Night King anyway. There's, but according to Rolora, there is a great other. According to Melisandre and Benero, is that the same other that is behind what's going on in the North? It's another or? other. It's another other. So who's, who's right about that? Is there a great other or is there not? Is there some boss energy? Is there some magical force that enables it all? Is there some heart, the heart of winter, if that's destroyed, will that wipe out all the others? Like maybe that's what she perceives as an energy source that she's perceiving as a god. And maybe just it, a mediocre know. other. <laughs> mediocre other. <laughs> uh, shadows are the domain of R'hllor versus shadows are the domain of the others. I mean, they're called white shadows, right? They're patch face. The shadows come to dance, my lord. The shadows come to play, Marla. Which one's he tie? Is he talking about Melisandre? Is he talking about the others? Which is it? Both? What about phrases, what nothing if, burns like the cold, you know? What if there's just a big miscommunication, misinterpretation? It's really the gray otter. <laughs> <laughs> the gray otter. I want to meet the gray otter. I want to feed him. What kind of, what kind of play does the great otter <laughs> engage in? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the topic of waxing and waning of magic. Get going over to Thoros talking about resurrections. Thoros, remember, Thoros was surprised that the last kiss worked on Beric. He had done it, he said, dozens of times before. And was like, what the? It worked? Thoros is like, I just keep kissing dead people. <laughs> and came back to life. I, I finally that. got my kiss right. <laughs> <laughs> like the kiss that can wake the dead. Hey, ladies. <laughs> I've got a kiss that can make the new. And that that did seem to be how they presented it with Melisandre and John in the show, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's true. I don't know what to do. I guess I'll try this. Oh, it worked, you know. And remember, Melisandre in the show, she sees the resurrection. She's aware of the resurrection. She's like, that shouldn't be possible. She she finds out about Beric. She doesn't know about Beric in the books. So I don't think she knows about resurrection at all yet in the books. No, I don't think she does. I mean, unless it's in her mind that we haven't addressed. She hasn't. Yeah, question, yeah, in the books is whether she'll find out through someone that it's possible, whether she'll stumble on it just by trying something, like, you know, separately, or whether it won't be, you know, that at all that brings him back to life. Because, you know, there are other theories, although they're kind of less relevant now that the show did what they did. It kind of blew the other theories out of the water a little bit. Yeah. So it's unclear since 
Thoros is really the only one that we get a clear picture of before the rise in magic that happens when around the time the comet comes and the dragons are born. Melisandre comes after that, right? Like she's the prologue of the next, the beginning of the next book. We don't know whether her powers were weaker before. And we don't know, you know, even though fire and ice are in opposition, we kind of see them work together sometimes, but not always. For example, Thoros's power, Thoros starts see, reading the flames as well. But his powers don't work at the Ghost of High Heart's Grove. Even though the weirwoods have been cut down, there's still enough like lingering magic. It just doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work here. I'll, when, we, when we leave, I'll go do my visions there and then we'll, you know, I'll get some clarity, but I can't do it here. And also Melisandre can't get inside Storm's End for her shadow baby unless Davos rose her under the walls. So she's kind of past that barrier. It's unclear if Makoro or Benera, if their powers have increased since the dragons are born in the comet, because we don't we only see them much later from that. It gives additional context when Melisandre burns the grove at Storm's End. She's doing it kind of maybe as a religious symbolism thing, but it may also have been a way for her to break that old god's magic. She may, th- those two may, may be connected. She may be like, if I burn this tree down, yes, I'm also making a religious statement, but I'm also maybe removing some anti-magic <laughs> that is, that's affecting my own skills here. Here's one that a lot of people may have missed in the Forsaken chapter. I know you haven't read this one, Sean, or maybe you have. Aaron sees one of his visions. He sees the Iron Throne with Euron sitting on it with a Cthulhu head. He's got a tentacled Kraken face and all the gods are impaled on the spikes of the Iron Throne. It's creepy and awesome. And one of the gods is the Lord of Light. We don't get a description, though. He just says he sees the Lord of Light in mm. hell. I'm like, well, what does that look like? <laughs> what is How it? does he know it's the Lord of Light? I know. What is it? What is uh, that? Come on. Like, does he see a figure yeah, on just there? Like a bunch like of the light, figure, like... the heart, the, like the fiery heart impaled, like just the symbol. Or is it like, you know, like when it's a dream and like, I saw you, Aziz, but like, how do you know it was me? I don't know. It wasn't really you, but like I knew in my brain, like it yeah. was you, even though I couldn't describe what you look like. Yeah. Kind of thing. I kind of figure that maybe if pressed, he might not have a description. He was like, I don't know. I just knew it was the Lord of Light kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And Danny, again, just we've, we've mentioned this briefly before, but when she's looking at the tent that Mary Mazdur is wearing, I think she sees a man wreathed in flame. One theory is that that is R'hllor, because R'hllor is a big part of her future. Nina suggests maybe that's Rickard Stark, because, you know, Danny's father burned Rickard Stark. And there's also a wolf in that scene. So the fact that wolves are part of the story and part of her future, both of those fit as ideas. I can't really say one idea is better than the other. So it's pretty cool, though. Either one I like, so worth pointing to. All right, our final section. Let's talk about a, a few things that are to come. We'll discuss some outlook. We obviously aren't going to do a deep dive on each Red Priest right now, but just a quick rundown. Melisandre, Makoro, Thoros, and Benero are the only named ones we've seen. Of course, the, there's, you know, the Stoneheart is a being imbued by R'hllor at this point, but she's not a priest, obviously. We saw a fat Red Priest at Danny's wedding, like I said. A drunk one that Arya sees... And Sam sees one at a brothel also in Bravos. So that's an, it's a sign of what type of, how the Red Temple functions in Bravos. We get a few clues from that, seeing one in a brothel, seeing one in a bar. You know, that's okay. So these are, these are not, this is not Benero, Makoro, Melisandre. These are different Red Priests. <laughs> these are not, n- n- notice are none of them Thoros are, folk. yeah, none of these are leading night fires or leading worshipers or preying, you know, like staying up all night yelling and preaching. This is very different, yeah. You know, earlier you supposed that maybe in Bravos they only send the most devout 
Maybe they send the least developed. Yeah. Eh, just send, send them to Bravo. Eh. Yeah, the, send the, them to Bravo. The wannabes, yeah. the half-hearted. The <laughs> We're not making much inroads over there anyway, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Addition by subtraction, send this guy over there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Triarchs and Volantis, we know they're aware that things are becoming a problem. They can see where the wind is blowing. The population of, Re- of R'hllor worshippers is massively outnumbers their own population. It's three-quarters of the people in Volantis are slaves, and most of them worship R'hllor. And they're really worried about what's going to happen with slave industry being under assault by Danny, with her being the symbol of revolution, with a lot of slaves probably wanting to join her. They're on a tightrope walk. They're like, well, how do we fight her when so many of our soldiers are slaves that see her as their savior? That's not going to work, is it? They don't fully grasp the peril they're in, but they are trying to take steps. And here's an example from Jorah and Tyrion's conversation with the widow on the waterfront. Here's what she says. Triarch Malakuo tried to hire the Golden Company. Did you know? He meant to clean out the Red Temple and put Benero to the sword. He dare not use tiger cloaks. Half of them worship the Lord of Light as well. Oh, these are dire days in old Volantis even for wrinkled old widows, but not half so dire as in Marine, I think. <laughs> yeah, Marine is true. They're, they're suffering the wrath of Danny right now and plague and yeah, it's true. There's a lot worse going in Marine. But Danny's coming. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about that widow. Yeah, don't worry. Danny's coming and she's <laughs> on your side. You're, you're going to help her when, when she arrives, I'm pretty sure. She's got a soft spot and loyalty for that side of things. She's no old blood of Volantis. I mean, she might not help her. She might just burn her on accident. I mean, True. like, I honestly, True. like, she's coming yeah. to Volantis with fire and blood. And I don't think, I think a lot of slaves are going to die because of Danny. Yeah. I do. You're right. <laughs> You'll note that the widow says Triarch Malco tried to hire the Golden Company. So why did they refuse? Because they were like, this is a terrible idea. We're not going to go attack the priests of the Red Temple and get on our, their bad side. Or because they were just busy with Aegon already. They're just, there are things happening and they don't have time for these other you know, contracts. It could be six of one, half a dozen of the other. But yeah, the Tiger Cloaks are the, you know, the military of Volantis. These are also slave soldiers. So <laughs> half of them are, worship the Lord of Light. Maybe they're not all slave soldiers. Maybe some of the commanders aren't. But again, it's the same problem. Like the, if the commanders all are ordering the subordinates to attack the god they worship, that the subordinates worship, that's not going to go well. Who are they really going to go? Are they going to obey their earthly master or the one who's promising them salvation and afterlife and all that? It's a pretty easy choice if you're devout. What will they? What else will they try? Will they try to take out Bonero some other time, some other way? Will they try to make some other maneuver? Will it even matter? Because Danny will get there first. The Widow of the Waterfront also points out that R'hllor has more worshipers in Volantis than all other gods combined. Watch out. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Venero straight up preaches that if Volantis goes to war against Danny, then Volantis will surely burn. <laughs> Which, yes, we agree. And Tyrion agrees too. His reasoning is more earthly. He's like, yeah, go against, yeah, obviously Danny. Uh, we as well agree that Volantis is. I, I agree that I thought that already. And then we had that experience. I, I, maybe I don't know if you were going to bring it up, disease, but yeah, I'll say at it. the con. <laughs> so I've said this before, but it's the time to bring this back. Me and Ashea were hanging out with Michael Clarfeld and a bunch of our friends at Worldcon in Dublin several years ago. And we were each getting a map signed by George. I had one of these, this known world map to get signed. I bring it up to George. He's like, oh, this is nice. You know, he, lo- he, he loves these maps. 
And he's like, soon this will all be on fire. Uh -uh. (laughs) I was like, whoa, spoiler. (laughs) Really? It's going to burn. I was like, all of it? You know? (laughs) Interesting. But probably Volantis and Marine uh, are are top one and two. Take your pick which is one and which is two, the most screwed. Yeah. King's Landing, perhaps, is on that list as well. (laughs) (laughs) Some pretty screwed cities. Yeah. Old Town, maybe. I don't know. Plague is coming. Different reasons they'll be screwed. There's a lot of cities that are screwed. Pentos is probably going to have some trouble. So in addition to there being just one god, there's this idea that there's only one prophet, which is an interesting point for us who consider that there is, who've taken note of the evidence for multiple Azor highs. Can there really only be one prophet based on what we know? That said, it's what they believe that matters as much as what we think is true. They're going to act on what they think is true, not what is real, right? So here's the quote when Tyrion realizes this. Not just one god, but one prophet. I just real quick, I just want to think about, I think you mean one messiah? I think a prophet is a little different. Well, this is, but, well, uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, messiah, really you're right. Yeah, that might, be, that might be a better word to use, yeah. Savior, Savior or whatever. Savior's probably a better word, yeah. The hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck began to prickle. Prince Aegon will find no friend here. The Red Priest spoke of an ancient prophecy, a prophecy that foretold the coming of a hero to deliver the world from darkness. One hero, not two. Daenerys has dragons. Aegon does not. The dwarf did not need to be a prophet himself to foresee how Bonero and his followers might react to a second Targaryen. Yeah, maybe they're the ones who burn King's Landing. And Danny, that could still be Danny, could still get blamed for that because they're following her. She's the one that they're following, even though she doesn't give the order. She doesn't tell them at all to do that. They see the second Targaryen. They're like, this guy is interfering with our savior, our leader figure. Danny wouldn't have to say anything. They could just go and burn that person in that city to the ground. And she takes the blame for it because they're following her. She's like, I didn't want them to do that. I didn't tell them. I told them not to do that. And they just did it. Yeah. Now, as I said, leading into that quote, we're not sold to Azor Ahai as a singular figure. But again, <laughs> the followers of Relore aren't going to listen to us. <laughs> They'll act on <laughs> what they believe. Melisandre thinks it's one. And here's, here's a quote from Melisandre. Yet now, she could not even seem to find her king. I pray for a glimpse of Azor Ahai, and Relore shows me only snow. Snow with a capital S. Only snow. Clearly, that's Ramsey. Yeah, oh, clearly yeah, Ramsey yeah. is Azor Ahai. <laughs> so if Danny is Azor Ahai according to Benero, and she does check off the boxes better than anyone, but John checks off a lot of the boxes too. And here we have this line where she sees only snow. I mean, in capital S. What the heck is that all about? That's pretty, it seems pretty straight. I mean, there's definitely some wiggle room. But with that capital S just does so much work. <laughs> Even without the capital S, I still think, whoa, really? Only yeah. snow, huh? But put the capital on it, that's not a... <laughs> yeah, that is, that is subtle <laughs> in that you could miss lightly. it, but it's not subtle in that when you see it, it's really hard to interpret as flakes falling from the sky. <laughs> that's a person. The capital S makes it so you cannot miss it or mistake it or yeah. misinterpret it. It's clear what it's supposed to mean there. Yeah, so... Ramsey. Ramsey, Ramsey. Ramsey, yes. Ramsey. <laughs> Super clear. <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. So we wonder like how that's going to play out if Melisandre will ever figure some of these things out. But really, honestly, these each of these red priests deserves their own episode. Melisandre, we could have a whole episode on her. We could have a whole episode on Makora. We could have an episode on Thoros. It would be really good. Let's let's run through a few other things that are happening or could happen that 
maybe will get expanded on in the story, things that are just starting. Like, Melisandre marries Alice Karstark and Sigourn of Fenn. That's an ice and fire marriage, too. We've got a, a lady of the north and a free folk from the far, far north. Like, the Fens. Remember, some of the Fens had never seen the wall. That's how far north they live. They're like, whoa, we've only heard about this thing. Thoros invokes R'hllor for trial by combat, right? They have that for Sandor versus Beric. That's under the eye of R'hllor. That's not a seven thing, right? Marriages, all these things. Well, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more like R'hllor being the god invoked for ceremonies that have gods invoked. Marriages, trials, battles, things like that. In Kohor, small note, we hear that in Kohor, the followers of the Red Priests have rioted and tried to burn down the Black Goat. They don't like the Black Goat. The Black Goat's among the most demonic of other gods. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if you're going to think of something that's more like the Great Other, it's the Black Goat. But the point here is that they're no longer getting along. The, 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 they had coexisted with other, with other religions, even though they're a monotheistic, dualistic religion and don't accept other religions. They had kind of gotten along, but current times, things are starting to fall apart. That's that unity, that barrier that kept them from fighting, that whatever peace was being maintained is falling apart. And these little one-liners are showing us that. It does a lot. You know, that one line telling us of, Sean, you're a big proponent of the one line of dialogue doing so much work. This is an example of that. Yes. Uh, we'll probably never go to Kohor directly, but it's a really cool place. Uh, it's got Valyrian magic. It's probably the, the place where Valyrian magic is the most still alive. It's the, the place where Valyrian steel uh, is the closest to being rediscovered. It's the place where they can remake it, but not make new versions of it. But yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. I wonder... I wonder which one line in A Song of Ice and Fire does the most heavy lifting, the most Whoa, work, you know? The most, like, the, the single shortest, greatest Yeah, like, one. I don't know the great, uh, greatest is, you know, call, maybe being, uh, putting too much emotion on it. That's but, a different uh, standard. Different standard. Greatest is different to, yeah. like, heavy lifting, doing the okay, work, you yeah. know? Like, I, an example might be, like, promise me, Ned. Those are three Ooh, words yeah, that one. say a <laughs> yeah. lot. They yeah, give yeah. you a lot right there. You don't need to know anything else to know there's, you know, there's something else there if you're just saying, promise me, Ned. You're not saying what to prom, you know. Anyways, that'd be something that's to food one. for thought for later. But, the reader lives a thousand lives. I like that one. That's a good one. That's more meta. Yeah, but, uh, I think that's more meta. I don't know. It's less about the series know. and more about just the experience of... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still does a lot of work. But you're right. I, yeah, it's hard to top and promise me now. Like, yeah, like which like <laughs> it's that thing where it's like a, a Twitter like short story where people will do like a drabble kind of thing where where you basically like you a, a short story in as few words as possible kind oh, of yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, what's another one? That comes yeah, the one you like know nothing, the... John Snow. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the most famous example of that is of the sad story is for sale baby shoes never oh, worn never you know worn, that yeah. one you know yeah. that one's like a, an iconic example of that where you yeah. know so little but it says a lot that baby had big feet yeah the one I think <laughs> <laughs> the one you said Aziz might be like a greatest line contender but isn't necessarily doing as much heavy lifting like the Shea is saying mm, yeah that's true <laughs> So yeah, the worse the fervor gets, the more violent it could get. The more the followers of R'hllor think their version of the apocalypse is coming, the more evidence for that, the more desperate things get, the more disease and war and darkness spread, the more they're going to see this as evidence of the end times and act on it. Consider what Stannis' R'hllor worshippers have been up to. They're pretty scummy. <laughs> you got guys 
they're light, lighting the night fires and that's that's not a problem but lighting the people that's a problem burning people more and more burnings of people even asha was queasy by the burning of humans and she's ironborn she's seen some of the worst of people shireen you know people want to there's there's that's coming somehow some way theon is probably not going to get burned but Danis's followers want him to burn Theon, and you know it could happen. I, I don't think it will, but Freys, maybe some Freys survive the Battle of Ice, and no one's going to stand up for them not getting burned. If Stannis has burned a few of these Freys, people are going to be like, "Well, I'm a, all right, yeah, they were our enemies. Maybe this is. Maybe I'd rather you just cut their heads off." But okay. Walter Frey probably would be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, we got too many. <laughs> like, ah, they're failures. Um, if, if my sons who fail, do what you will with them. I only keep the winners. <laughs> I like people who don't get captured. The twinners, you mean. <laughs> What's that? The twinners. The twinners, mean. yes. <laughs> He's only for twinning. What about what happens to the murderers of John? What if the Night's Watch loses after assassinating John and like the people who are on his side come out ahead, Melisandre and those people come out ahead? Are they going to burn Bowen Marsh? Are they going to burn, you know, Wick Whittlestick, the people who stabbed John? Like, I could see that happening. Maybe to bring John back. That could be part of it. Like, We'll just be seeing more of that, I think. All right, a couple of questions here. Book Nerd says, did the Valyrians tattoo their slaves? Could that be one of the reasons why the Faceless Men began changing their faces in the first place? Oh, that's a cool idea, that secondary one. I've never thought about that. They had to cover their tattoos. We don't know if the Valyrians tattooed their slaves. It would make a lot of sense. It would make sense that that Volantis wasn't the origin of that idea. On the other hand, we don't know of tattooing in other free cities that were ruled by Valyria for a long time. So maybe it's a Valentine thing only. We don't know. But I think there's a strong chance it was. Because it happened in the, in the real world, too. Tattooing slaves was a very common thing in the real world. So it's just a, kind of an obvious idea. You know, like a permanent way to mark somebody. One thing we saw, we learned of siege tactics. That was one way to pass messages in and out of a siege. Would be to shave a slave's head, tattoo a message on it, and then let their hair grow back. And then send them inside with instructions. Say, hey, shave my head and you'll get the message. <laughs> you can also do that on an animal. You don't have to do a human with it. You can shave like the side of a cow, tattoo something, let the fur grow back. Then it's just, yeah, there's a way to pass messages. It's, Whoa, that is clever. <laughs> it's also <laughs> gross, but ingenuity aspect of it's pretty clever. Phil H says, the eagle tattoo on the thrall's chest, burning after blowing the horn, flame from within is interesting connection to it too. Oh, yeah. Great call. That is another example of burning a burning body that's like magical and orient. Yeah, and well, when bur- when blowing the horn, did they feel agony and ecstasy or just agony? Yeah, yeah. that guy died. We yeah. found out or we're told. We don't actually see the body. Euron is a dishonest guy, but I tend to believe him on that one. He said his, his lungs were filled with ash, which that's kind of a fire transformation thing. Maybe not the, the full version, <laughs> the bad version. Like you're not transformed. You're just die. But yeah, that is, that's a great call out Phil H. Matthew says, the idea of a super weapon reminds me of nuclear power. Dragons in Westeros being compared to nuclear power made me think that maybe Azor High didn't make a sword. He hatched a dragon like Daenerys. Hmm. It was part of the legend of the Nissa's story is the really loud cracking sound. Right? Which Danny's eggs made a really loud cracking sound during the, the hatching at the end of Game of Thrones. So there is that element connecting them as long, uh, along with some other ideas. Yeah, I mean, they, and they talk about like the crack across the moon or whatever and the Which idea of dragons, dragons coming from the moon, you know. 
<laughs> yep, that's right. It is set up. It is set up. That's pretty cool. Terra Incognita says, maybe the flame vision shows the nearest potential Azora High Reborn. As in like why Melisandre might see John and Bonero might see Danny. They see you see what's oh. closest to you. And Some I like that proximity. idea a lot that if, if there isn't just one that you would see through proximity. Because I I, mm. I I really don't like the idea of it being just John or just Danny personally. I'm like pretty against that. I am um, too. It just doesn't seem to work because it it's doesn't just, work they both fit me. it yeah, so well. Just, yeah, I don't know. I just doesn't. I, just, like, I fully acknowledge yeah. Danny fits it better. But John fits it pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like the idea of it. Yeah, the being that they're they're both the they both have the potential to be Azor A high and could both be Azor A high together. Separately. John could check off together, more boxes you know. later. Like maybe he'll do some yeah. other things that align with. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that if basically that if Melisandre was in Essos near Danny, that she might start seeing Danny in her in her visions because yeah. they're like close. It's definitely a big if. Like what happens? Hey, when Makoro introduces all this stuff to Danny, and then when Danny meets Melisandre, presuming, assuming that happens, which I would guess it will, you know, and Makoro and Melisandre, yeah. will they get along? Will they argue? Will they have dogmatic arguments like, no, Rolora says this. No, Rolora says this. Yeah, who yeah. knows? <laughs> Even if it is just John, John or just Danny, it's still not enough for, it's, it isn't just them that's going to do it. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. no. It wasn't just Zora High. It also, he needed Nissa Nissa, for yeah. example, you know what I mean? So, Tyrion, Arya, Sansa, like people who yeah, are going to be doing the original organizing. Tale, yeah, or... Yintar and Nefarian and Eldric Shadow Chaser. We don't think, we think, to be clear, I, and I'll speak for Aziz here as well, we, we think it's possible that they're the same figure, but we don't lean towards them being the same figure. We think they were multiple figures, you know, in part of the history. Yeah. Eldric Shadow Chaser is a different person from Yintar. But maybe Eldric Shadow Chaser is the same person as Hirkun the Hero. Or like, maybe some of them are the same figure and not all of, you know, like in terms of that. But just like that, like we see Arya and Tyrion and Bran and all of them are essential to. Yeah, it would be weird if they were all off or on for the same reason. Like the information was like, all of them are this. Yeah, no. I don't think all of them are. I think some of them, I don't think all of them are. I don't think that, I I think they're going to make sense to me that there would be some crossover in figures that, yeah. you know, that totally. Hirakun could be a Zora High or something. Okay. The trivia question. Let's give our answer. You said you knew the answer to this one, Sean. Okay. But what is it, Sean? Who What's else is called Pink Priest? Or who calls someone else Pink Priest? Bonus if you can say who it was. Victorian calls Makoro Pink Priest. Correct. Yes, Yay! that's right. Good yes, Victorian does have that sense of humor as well. <laughs> It's neat. What is that supposed to mean? Like they're watered down? Well, he literally was watered down. He floated yeah. in the sea for 10 days. <laughs> yeah, he was like looking at his at his robes because Makoro claimed to have been in the water for 14 days. And I was like, no one could have lived in the water for that long. Yeah. He's, and I think he says something like, you know, what are you, some kind of magician? He's like, no, I'm a red priest. And he, and he looks at him and realizes, you know, his robes might have been red at one point. Yeah. And he says, more like a pink priest. <laughs> I remember when Victorian does this, he's like, I, he, he's, I thought that giving him a Greyjoy robe would make people accept him more. And it was it had the opposite effect. It was like, are you kidding me? It's like a seven foot tall, super wide, like the, the width of three people, pitch black face as if he's been burned with tattoos, with flame tattoos. And you give him a black golden Kraken cow to make him look friendlier? <laughs> <laughs> didn't work. Yeah, I was like, huh, that didn't work. I don't get it. I get it. Yeah, that's that. So yes, it was, the answer was Victorian and Makoro. So I highly recommend our Ash Eye episode. Even, we ha- even though we had so much to say today, there isn't that much overlap. There's just, this is just a huge topic. We get more into the details of the prophecy, more into the details of Ash Eye itself, which we 
didn't really touch on so much here. A little more about magic, a little about, more about certain characters, a little more into the magical side of things. This was more about trying to... This episode, I think we focused more on characters, outlook for characters, outlook for masses of people, outlook for the whole societies of Westeros and what they're going to perceive. So the Ashai episode is more focused on things from the other angle, more from the inside of the story. Next week, we're going to talk about Before the Dragons. That is the state of Westeros during the generation just before the conquest. So right before Aegon's conquest, the 10 to 15, 20 years before that, what was it like before Aegon set about uniting it all? That topic, like all of our topics over the last few months, was chosen by our loyal and lovely patrons. Patreon.com slash History of Westeros if you would like to join in. You can also sign up to subscribe and get our bonus episodes via Spotify. You can just add on $5 a month to your monthly bill. Fire and forget sort of situation. And uh, just leave it be. Get all our bonus episodes, which we're constantly adding more to. We're uploading them about one a week. So do that if you're so inclined. If you need more History of Westeros, we got you covered. And if, also, you're, if you live in the San Diego area, let us send us an email. We'll be there July 20th to 24th. That's right. And, of course, you can also send a one-time donation through our website. We'll send you our bonus episodes manually that way if you prefer. So we want to try to give you as many ways as possible to support the show, to keep it going, and to continue to have as much fun as possible approximately once a week, sometimes a little more often. We got House of the Dragon coming pretty soon, so we're going to be having even more fun when that happens. Thanks to uh, everyone who came live and watched today. Thanks to everyone who downloads and listens later. We appreciate if you want to leave a rating or a review, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Hit the like button on YouTube. If it's positive. Yeah. (laughs) I appreciate it if you leave a positive review. (laughs) Negative review. I don't appreciate that so much, I gotta say. I I find it weird that someone would listen to the entire episode here where it was more than three hours and be like, I'm giving them a one-star review. Like, why did you listen to this whole thing if you weren't (laughs) enjoying it? There's a lot of other podcasts. People are weird out there. They are, they are. You can sometimes you can upset somebody with one comment and throw the whole thing off. (laughs) I would like to think we're not that controversial, but the world is... Well, there was some controversy in the chat today. Huh? Oh, oh Sean's background. Someone asked, what poster does Sean have in the background? He's got, that's Moonlight and Contact, right? Oh, yeah, Contact. Yeah, I saw that one in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> makes me, yeah, makes me old. Thanks to Nina for now he's her... he's got a cat on yeah, screen we got a kitty. as well. Thanks to Nina for her assistance for great notes. Check out Good Yay, Queen Alley. That's one L. Alley.tumblr.com. Thank you very much to all our patrons and other supporters. I'm Cora. There's Cora. Yeah. Cora Named after Makoro because yeah. of her flames across her face. Yeah, That's cool. The, the Perfect. Face <laughs> she's got a oh, night fire to tend to, though. So yeah. she's, got, she's <laughs> got to move on. <laughs> Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael for our music and video intro and all the excellent stuff that makes our show better. Thanks to our mods on Discord and Facebook for helping manage everything, keeping the discussions clean and friendly and thorough. Our friends over at Here Be Dragons, well, we went a little beyond our normal starts. They're already starting today. They're at their cover in Kenobi, which just finished. So that's a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Let's real quick set up. Just a little our, preview for y'all. A preview for y'all. We're going to be announcing this Who's more, next? but. 
If you're trying to get your plans set or curious what our plans are going to be, our House of the Dragon schedule going forward will be Monday at 6, 6 Eastern, Saturday at 3. So basically our Sunday time is going to be Saturday time instead. Same time, 24 hours earlier. And so on Monday, we'll have Sean to talk about the episode. And then on Saturday, we'll have a guest usually to talk about the episode uh, coming up uh, in full spoilery discussion to, you know, just for all of us who know what's going to happen, we can talk about that and do a little uh, preview of the upcoming episode. So we'll have Monday at six with Sean, spoiler light to no spoilers, and then Saturday at three with a recurring, with rotating guests with spoilers and looks ahead. And we'll also have additional content, um, script content between that. But those are the two, that's the live stream skit. Yeah. So just just so you know, so if you're like, you know, wanting to schedule your work or something, you know, your work schedule and you get to plan in advance, it's helpful for you to know to be off at Monday at six. Yep. (laughs) Well, our longest episode in a while is now complete. We'll see you next time for more Valar Reus.